0: I am willing to wager twenty thousand
1: pounds that I will make a tour of the world in eighty days or less. Do you accept? I accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover
2: this evening. Good evening, gentlemen.
0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Eighty Days and Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast, as ever, is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong and joining me today are Mark Boyle in the UK and Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about Luxembourg, a small landlocked European country at one of the central crossroads of Europe, bordered by Belgium, France and Germany. Officially known as the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, the country has around 600,000 inhabitants and spans a total area of around 2,500 square kilometers, or about 1,000 square miles, making it roughly the same size as Hong Kong and about two-thirds the size of the smallest US state, Rhode Island. The world's only remaining Grand Duchy, it has been referred to throughout history as the Gibraltar of the North for its strong fortifications, and although its fortress has been occupied many times throughout its long history, since the 10th century it has always been a separate, if not autonomous, political entity. Today, the capital city of Luxembourg, Luxembourg City, is one of the three de facto capitals of the European Union and is much better known for its financial prowess rather than its military fortifications. Most citizens here are at least trilingual, speaking French, German and Luxembourgish, and although it has one of the EU's smallest populations, Luxembourg also has the fastest growing population in Europe. Okay, let's start out by foreshadowing some of the things that we're looking forward to learning today. Joe, why don't you go first?
2: I'm looking forward to discussing how basically having a very well-positioned rock resulted in this place being one of the most important locations in the development of the European Union. Okay. Uh, I'm looking forward to telling a small story
0: uh, that's related to Luxembourg about uh, a point in history when 10 days just disappeared from history entirely, and I'll, I'll explain that when we get
2: there. But it's a calendar reform? It says a it calendar reform. It is sexy, oh, sexy oh calendar my. reform.
1: <laughs> oh dear, um, I I have uh, uh, one and a half points. Uh, one is that uh, there's a, an example of a dance craze, uh, very much the, the Macarena of the Middle Ages, uh, <laughs> which also involves a link mm. to Carlo, weirdly, um, and and also I just wanted to note for you know the geographical. Header of this episode that with regards Germany, this duchy is on the left hand side. <laughs> anyway, um,
2: okay. Um, just to tell you guys, I, I, uh, I well as you two are aware, I actually spent a weekend in Luxembourg a few months ago. Oh yeah. On on my way home from Switzerland, and uh, so mm. I've seen a few few things firsthand, Which... and I kind of can talk a bit about the the actual geography of the city. And and one of the villages I visited, so um, it's a really and, and to, really beautiful place, actually. Even on to a to tell rainy. the
1: listeners, Joe, Joe was a changed man after going to Luxembourg. Before it was all it was all hedonism and uh, and <laughs> just we couldn't we couldn't keep him out of the cat houses and so he was on. A and, wild man, and, and, and now Luxembourg has 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 thawed his chilly heart, and he he's now just. Hugging puppies. Soothe and his soul. It's yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> o- Ointment for, <laughs> oint for his mind. Indeed. But no,
2: <laughs> it it is it like I would recommend um tourist office in Luxembourg actually did do a really good walking tour that took like I don't know, three hours of going around the fortifications and stuff. So like it it's a very very interesting place to visit if you're into history.
1: Also, I mean, while while we're talking about it, uh, our, our like research for the episode that uh, you know resor- resources can often be a bit of a mixed bag uh, when you're looking looking for stuff in a country look a lot of luxembourg history is actually on luxembourg websites mm. the, the government mm-hmm. is very forthright about here is our history this is what happened uh, it's this is this is what it is uh, you should read about it and come here they're very like p- plugging luxembourg <laughs> as a history destination it's it's yeah interesting for take.
0: sure they are yeah I mean it's, it, it's great for us when we're trying to research the place as well because they're, <laughs> they're obviously uh a, a good authority on what 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 went on. So uh no, but no I, I, I just hiding wanted to ask the history. before we dive into things. Yeah. Uh I just wanted to ask before we dive in, Joe, um just in a in a in a quick summary, how how does Luxembourg to you compare to Switzerland? Because obviously you're you're kind of an authority on Switzerland at this point.
2: There there were definite parallels. I mean the the, the shape of the city of Luxembourg is, isn't that dissimilar from Bern it's very much like you know this is where a big rocky outcrop got in the way of a river so we built a castle there kind of situation all right um, sure. it's quiet and sleepy everything closes down on Sunday and there's nothing to do um and they speak a weird kind of German uh, which in Luxembourg they're given a different way oh, don't call it German um it, yeah, yeah but it, it is it is a, I've
0: heard they don't like it when you call it ger- call it a dialect. no but something. it is a
2: high German language <laughs> yeah um and sure Swiss they don't call a different language, but it is as equally difficult to understand for a German as Luxembourgish is. So it shares a lot of cool. um, And even the way they celebrate Carnival uh, around kind of Mardi Gras period of the year looks very familiar. So it has a lot in common with like definitely Middle Ages Switzerland, but maybe it's gone quite a different direction because of its location. Sure. it's It being on the way between France and Germany has meant it gets caught up in everything. L- yep. li- literally Literally um, But yeah no it, Literally yes It shares a lot of uh, And the multilingualism And so on Is is quite familiar uh, Like you say Three languages Everyone speaks English as well So
1: And and also The fact that they got All those dollar dollar bills Does that Does that Yeah you? people were telling me It's Ooh, a very yes. expensive we'll country to that. visit
2: But I'd just come from Switzerland So I didn't really notice uh, but it is oh out here <laughs> it is you know you're kind of yeah. paying over twenty quid for your happy meal and you're like oh hang on that is a lot <laughs> wow okay all right
0: uh just a yeah a warning there for visit, for people who might be planning on visiting yeah. I guess mm-hmm. very nice but uh
1: proportionally proportional costs yeah. For
0: that. yeah all right so early history mark let's uh let's get into it
1: so um you know early history I'm not gonna give you an absolute play by play because it it is. It's Central Europe. Uh, it's exactly what you expect from Central Europe. It's some celtic stuff, some Romany stuff, and then, you know, lots of kings and, you know, k- kingish-like types, duchies and so on. Uh, but according to Britannica.com, the earliest remains found in present-day Luxembourg date from 5000 BC. But I've also actually seen wow. reference to some bones dated from 35,000 years ago, so, you know... People have been here for Europe inhabiting amounts of time. It is, it is just a plot of land in Europe, so uh, not to overcomplicate it. Um, so Britannica, like their national namesake, have been shamed by ineptitude in giving me multiple multiple dates. So apologies, apologies for, for that. Uh, as as well as these randomly thrown sure. out uh, unsubstantiated dates, um, there is probably most noteworthy is is a is a man a certain man uh, known as the first Luxemburger. Uh, he, he is also now a dead man, uh, <laughs> and a, and a skeleton called the, the Loshboar man, Loshboar. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be mispronouncing many words throughout this. So, uh, that's, that's for listener bingo. Uh, shall we all maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Loshboar, Loshboar. I don't know. I'm just saying the same word and chatting it in an accent. Um, so from about 8,000 years ago was the Loshboar man. So 6,000 BC. Here, here's a quote from the Luxembourg Vort, which I assume is the Luxembourg word. Indeed. Yeah via Google Translate. Our man from Loshboer was a small man, uh, 1.6 meters, apparently, robust uh, between 58 and 62 kg. He must have been aged 34 to 47 at the time of his death and had dark skin, dark hair, and blue eyes. The specimen found... A bit bit of a weird take by the old uh Luxembourg vort here. Uh, the specimen found was rather pretty, boy as revealed by three-dimensional reconstruction based on the skull and his genetic data. Kind of, right. uh, I don't know, a bit, bit of a value judgment on, on the old Lushbur Man. there. I feel a bit, bit, uh, bit inappropriate. So what we have here, uh, not unlike Liechtenstein, uh, is a bunch of European humans doing lots of European-y, human-y stuff for thousands thousands of years. Uh, they have Bronze Age, and they have an Iron Age, and then they go and lots of Celts. Uh, a lot of pewter, you know, whatever. Uh, lots of stuff. Um, but nothing but, specifically
2: uh, Luxembourgish about any of
1: it. Nah, not nah, not really. No. Uh, but kind of clarifying about <laughs> two thousand years ago, um, the area was dominated by by Celts, but specifically a sub type of Celt called the Triveri. Uh, who, as I say, kind of Celtic tribe. Um, notable settlement of theirs was at Tittelberg, Tittelberg, with lots of fortifications there. Um. Uh and I think that that settlement actually continued on to be inhabited for for quite some time but it was originally a a, a, a Triveri settlement. Um it they weren't the Triveri were kind of distinct from a lot of the Celts where you know the Celts were noted to be a pretty fierce opponent by by the Romans. Not so the Triveri, they were more kind of on the diplomatic side. Um which is maybe well, that's why the reading well, I was gonna say it's it's maybe why like we're reading about them and the Romans didn't obliterate them. Um they basically said, Oh yeah, you have quite a large army. Uh, maybe we're also Romans, eh? Uh so um when the Romans started Romaning in their direction, uh yeah, they were happy to run with that flow of traffic and uh yeah, they were incorporated into the Empire. Um and you know, their kind of culture then becomes Roman culture from, from then on. Mm. Um so, it, yeah, it was uh, amalgamated into the province of Celtic Gaul uh, and then eventually becoming Belgian Gaul. Uh, and it passed hand several more times uh, from the Romans. Eventually they were kind of turfed out. Uh, and we have the, the Merovingians coming in who mm. are sort of a a, a a monarchical line of Franks, I believe. Indeed. Yeah. Um and they were the main main local power in kind of eastern Francish, western Germanish area, uh, and they were there from the four hundreds until the mid seven hundreds, and then they were essentially replaced wholesale by the Carolingians. Yeah, which is um, Charlemagne and his crew. Yeah, exactly. He he's in the middle of that, um, all the way up to the end of the first millennium AD. But uh, overall, as we see with many areas of Europe. They were lacking any natural borders around Luxembourg. It was really just kind of a plot of land that was getting traded between, you know, monarchical lines and subdivided between dukes and whatnot. Um, so somebody put their luxy stake in the ground uh, kind of toward the end of this Carolingian era. Uh, one uh, honourable mention from this whole period goes out to St. Villebrord, uh, the patron saint of Luxembourg. Ville uh, was born in the UK, in Northumbria, apparently. Hmm. Uh, and he, he did a lot of saintly wandering uh, and laying out heavy heavy doses of, of Christianity. Um, two events stand out. One of them was that in uh, 698, he established the Abbey of Ecternach uh, on the site of a Roman villa in, in Luxembourg. He'd been uh, gifted this plot of land for helping out the owner uh, with a plague that had been going on some towns away. Uh, he is. He, he seems to be a very kind of proactive guy uh, and well known uh, in the area. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, solving a plague is uh, kind of the opposite of first world problems. It's uh, <laughs> it's like that's 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 the realest of the problem. real. I think that will uh, raise your popularity yeah. stakes a little. Yeah. Wh- wh- mm. What's new with you? Well, my town was wiped out by a plague, and you. Well, uh, I I changed my kitchen. Um, so um, he founded this this abbey at uh, Ecternach. Uh, and that, like as I say, that's a really big deal, and is is there to this day, and is uh, is the center of what I'm about to kind of go into next. He, here's the, here's a line from pilgrimagemedievalireland.com uh, that that uh, sent my trivia antenna a quiver. In 690 A.D., he led a successful European mission from Carlo, and the annual hopping procession held in his honor in Ecternach has received UNESCO World Heritage oh, status. this is
2: the hopping guy.
1: I've heard about he this. He is the hopping yeah, guy. Yeah.
2: The
0: um, hopping dance thing, yeah.
2: I think there was some news story not that long ago where they brought over a Luxembourgish delegation. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So uh, I found some coverage of this. So it's uh, located in the townland of Gary Hunden, Car- County Carlow. And, you know... I haven't lived in Ireland for a while now, but in in my twenty something years living there, I've never heard of the the townland of Garyhundon. Nor uh, for any international I mean, listeners, i am
0: from i am from a I'm from a neighbouring ca- uh, neighbouring county, and I've never heard of it. So yeah, Ga- I mean, Gary mean yeah, is pretty obscure, a, is a really small
1: place. Um, so yeah. there's an archaeological site there, commonly referred to as Killogan. And when I try to look it up, it's like, well, it's in some guy's field. Sometimes he'll let you look, but otherwise, <laughs> otherwise he won't. Uh, uh, or Rathmash, or Clonmelsh Graveyard. It's called all these different things because it's been there a hell of a long time. Um, Villebroard was apparently based there for a while, and it was from there that he set out uh, with a bunch of missionaries on one of his two big kind of uh, uh, tours, I guess? Pil- pilgrimage tours? Um, in 739 AD, he died at age 81. And he's buried at Echternach, and he is the only saint to be buried in Luxembourg, apparently. Oh. Um, hmm. But... As a part of the kind of pilgrimage that was created around, you know, going to to his uh, his abbey and to his tomb, um, this hopping thing came up. And truthfully, there's no record of where this emanates from. So I don't I don't have a you know it. I don't know. I don't, I don't know why they're hopping. They're hopping. There's a lot of them. They're hopping in Carlo too. That's these are the these are the bullet points. Um, going back to sixteenth century. Male pilgrims from voxweiler started performing a hopping dance on the way to Ecternach to present their offerings for Whitsuntide holidays, and that's when the um, that's when the uh, hopping happens today, as I understand. Uh, nowadays, musicians, yes. prelates, abbots, bishops, and nine thousand pilgrims from all over Europe, mostly dressed in white shirts and dark trousers, hop to a polka melody through the medieval streets of Echternach, uh going past uh, the tomb. Uh, I've I've youtube it, and it's. Uh, so as well as the 2017 video from Carlo, where it's a bunch of kind of elderly people uh, hopping in an absolute flipping gale. That doesn't uh, seem like a good idea. It was just, just looks like, so miserable. They're just, get, just I don't know, the, 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 the heavens did not smile upon their offering, I'll put it that way. They're <laughs> wearing like windbreakers and okay. buffeted it over. Um, but it's it's kind of like a you hop once forward and then hop once to the side. But everyone's kind of doing the same thing. And I guess because of normal human herd mentality things, everyone's kind of hopping in kind of unison then. Because you're watching all the people in front of you hop. So everyone's like, like bop to the front, bop to the right. So it's very Macarena. like very Saturday, Saturday
0: night. Uh, okay.
1: I, I think we'll I'm actually and find describing... and video and
0: put it in the show notes for you. Am I
1: describing the cha-cha slide? <laughs> Bounce to the left.
0: I thought you were describing to the, the, the Macarena for a second.
1: Uh, cha-cha slide, yo. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Luxembourg became uh, an independent entity in the 10th century. Um, the the history of which was Count Siegfried, uh, who was essentially from a a, a I think it was a subset of the Carolingians, but it was at, um the, it was the House of Ardennes. With the Ardennes being the kind of uh, the the it's kind of foresty area around here, right? foresty area exactly yeah. that borders also with Germany. We'll talk a bit more uh, later on. Well, but well known for its its you know. Wars. Well, well, yeah. Well known for people yeah. trying to do wars in it. Uh, but Arden was also the kind of royal line of the time. I, I believe Siegfried belonged, belong, belonged? belonged and was beloined of that, uh, yeah, of that on, line. On his
2: mother's side, he was descended from Charlemagne.
1: Yeah. So. But um, he essentially purchased, or uh, so, some other way acquired, the Abbey of Saint Maximin in Trier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and through this, got a small fort called luslin Burhuk. I believe? Maybe. Uh, yeah. Located on a rocky outcrop of the Bach. It's, it's, a,
0: it's a particularly difficult word to, to... Like, you look at it and just kind of go, oh, man. Yeah, I, that's not a word. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a good attempt. Yeah. But it
1: essentially just means small fort or small castle. Yeah. Um, Some kind of proto-Germanic
2: sure. version of what would eventually become Luxembourg. Uh,
1: anyway, so um, he, he acquired this land and built the castle. And Siegfried's possessions, just to mention would become, you know, as we saw with Liechtenstein, ever more kind of amalgamated mm-hmm. into a more and more coherent block of land that would eventually become Luxembourg. But at this point, it's, you know, a bit of Luxembourg has passed to a person who will kind of in, in future and via line- lineage start to actually uh, uh, coagulate Luxembourg around it. But uh, this, uh, this is the starting point.
2: And just to say about the Bock, Bach, the, the Bock Bach is a quite imposing, but rocky... Outcropping, so like it's, it's a great name. It's um the city is is a really mm. position. So I think it was on the crossroads of an east west north south kind of trade route. Mm. Um, but also the, there's two rivers. There's the, the Petrus comes in from the south, and then there's the Alset kind of loops around this rocky promontory. Oh right, and it's called the Bock. And like I, I was staying in the youth hostel, which is kind of in the valley of the Alset below the Bok. And you really look at up, look up at it even with most of the fortifications gone. It's still like it's just a massive straight cliff, of really craggy rocks. Like you, if you were looking around, if you're looking around this part of the world to find somewhere to put your imposing castle, like it, it is a it's a no-brainer.
1: A good place to throw rocks For at people sure. and stab them from.
2: Yeah, and you've got a nice view up three different valleys, basically.
1: And the, the view is impeccable, but mainly the stabbing and the rock throwing. Yeah.
2: And then it's it's yeah. separated by a small gap from a lar- another larger outcropping, which is where the main city is today.
1: Oh, right. Okay.
2: So it's this kind of really, you know, you, cu- you couldn't design it if you if you wanted. Is
1: there a cable car or something between them? Yeah.
2: Now there's actually, a since the 1800- 1830s, it's been a, like an actual bridge.
1: Oh, wow. Um, okay. A kind of fortified good.
2: bridge, which is pretty cool. I, I, I'll put up some photos in our show notes. Yeah, of, of what's still there, but it was obviously much more impressive. Uh, you know, when when the fortress still stood.
0: So yeah, Siegfried, uh, as you mentioned, Marcus, is, is kind of like the 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 father of the nation, or yeah. seen as as the proto Luxemburger uh, today. Uh, he turned out to be a very very fertile fellow. His ups- offspring oh uh, ruled this region for another two hundred years or so uh, after his death. So, but yeah, throughout that time, then the territory grew, expanded. Uh, like you mentioned, that he kind of uh, him and his descendants kind of acquired different different plots of land around yeah. it, and uh, sort of began to began to fortify their holdings. After his male line, uh the male line ran out. The Territory passed to one Henri the Fourth of Namur, and he was not a particularly great leader, as far as I can make out. But um, his daughter is is uh, is regarded as as one of the uh, second fathers or mothers of the nation, I guess.
1: Uh, I follow so, the mother.
0: Um, yeah, we can have a father and a mother, I guess, from from a couple hundred years apart. Sounds complicated. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, I guess it's it's the Middle Ages at this point, like around um, 1186. So, I think it's I think it's no surprise to say that women shouldn't really be notable at all at this time. You know, the uh, the, 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 the the patriarchy is in full swing at this point. <laughs> okay, I um, thought that was your what? own
1: personal view, there, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> no. women should not be recorded in history until 40 years ago.
0: Exactly, Fair. that's the hill I'm willing yeah. to die on. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a recent tweet of mine. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, so her, her her, father, who was long separated from her mother and had no other kids, um, had decided on naming his nephew, a guy called Baldwin, as his heir. He sounds great, yeah. And therefore the heir to uh, Luxembourg. William Baldwin. Yeah. However, some papal supporters were not too keen on this guy, Baldwin. Uh, didn't see him as a friend of the church. And they convinced Henri to reconcile with his wife. And therefore, uh, a daughter, Ermesind, I think is her name, or how you pronounce it, Ermesind, she was born then of this uh, reconciled marriage. And before she turned 10, Henri arranged for her to marry a guy called Theobald, and then he died. Uh, Henri, her father, died, so she was kind of left, you know, uh, holding on to Luxembourg. And her husband's son from a previous marriage rightly apparently should have inherited. Oh, her husband also died. So her husband died in 1213. Uh, oh. They had four kids. And then uh, she decided to very quickly remarry within a few months, I believe, to another noble called uh, Wa- Walleran. It's almost like she didn't love the man she was married off to as a child. Well, I mean, she she strikes me as a person who's very adept at playing the Game of Thrones, as it were. <laughs> oh, so she's, she's very, very good at managing to hold on to power. So alongside him, uh, her husband, she would rule Luxembourg for another 11 years and have another three kids, the eldest of which was a boy called Henri, named after her first husband, um, oh. and after which her her second husband died. So now <sighs> she has, uh, what is that, seven kids and yep. no husband. And yep. uh, so, yeah, her her son was still not of age. So Ermesin des- decides t- to make herself ruler. Good woman and uh grasps those 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 reins of government and uh steer the country herself and yeah surprisingly she she did a really good job i mean um you know she she very quickly garnered a, re- a reputation as a a very savvy deal maker again in a in a I world already dominated by that, by yeah. men yeah um so she increased civil liberties in luxembourg or what would later become luxembourg she uh invested in in her people and brokered agreements with friends and enemies to increase her standing uh, and the power of her small territory, and she also, I have in my notes here, somewhat ironically worked to uh, dismantle hereditary position, uh, positions within the political system. Nice. So even though she had kind of maneuvered uh, to you know through these different marriages and alliances to 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 give herself power, she decides ah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make it a little bit more liberal, a little bit more um, easy for for you know a a little bit more of a meritocracy i guess the small territory that she had inherited didn't stay small for very long and thanks to her uh savvy government luxembourg under her reign approximately tripled in size um and her son when he came of age didn't actually take the throne at all he was just like hey you hey mom you seem to be doing a good job so uh you just keep doing what you're doing so she ruled uh until 1247 and died at age 61 And the Abbey of Clairefontaine, which uh, I'm sure many people will have heard of in modern day Belgium, was built by her son on a spot where she had once had a vision of the Virgin Mary and her remains (laughs) are there. The Virgin Mary wants me to keep ruling. So her son continued to garner this myth of personality around her cult of personality uh, and encouraged the view that she was the second founder of Luxembourg after Siegfried, as we mentioned, which many people still uh, hold true to today. Um. so her great-grandson Henry IV became Holy Roman Emperor in 1303 Homie and Emperor. he was I think one of yes and he was I think one of four from, from the House of Luxembourg from the House of Luxembourg exactly to uh, become Holy Roman Empire throughout the next couple hundred years
2: it's it's kind of it's kind of a surprising one like the Council of Luxembourg should have been pretty inconsequential sure uh, and they end up running most of europe and they, they were kings of bohemia as well right i think one I when the second happened, holy roman thing. emperor was uh from luxembourg was was also king of bohemia beforehand so i guess and that's like most of the what czech republic and poland and, and like mm-hmm. parts of austria it's just this massive country that they went oh yes we also have this Yep, but we're still the accounts yep. of so
0: this rock I guess Hermesin passed down her her political savvy to her uh to her sons and, and ancestors, I suppose. So yeah, Henry the 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 fourth became Holy Roman Emperor uh, and became known as Henry the seventh uh, as Holy Roman Emperor. That was in thirteen oh three. Okay. He was the first from the House of Luxembourg and was the first Holy Roman Emperor since the death of Frederick II in twelve fifty, uh, which hmm. ended a great interregnum of the time. His grandson, known as uh, Venslis, who was half Czech and half Luxembourgish, uh, was elected in 1355 as Charles IV Holy Roman Emperor. And he was the one that raised Luxembourg to the status of a duchy, uh, which, as we mentioned in the intro, it retains to this day. Uh, His successor and his son was a guy called Sigismund, and he was uh, the last member of the House of Luxembourg, last male member of the House of Luxembourg, and was nicknamed the Ginger Fox because of had very attractive red hair. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, but basically soon after that point, uh, the glory days of Luxembourg came to an end. Uh, The duchy ran into debt and had to be sold off a number of times. The lands had to be sold off. Uh, In 1477, uh, 17 provinces and states in the Low Countries, including Luxembourg, became property of the Habsburgs. In 1556, this entire territory... Passed to the Spanish Empire and was therefore known as the Spanish Netherlands, which is is kind of uh, mind-boggling. Yeah, so in in 1582, the Gregorian or New World Calendar was adopted for the very first time ever in Italy, France, Luxembourg, Spain, Mm -hmm. and Portugal. And in order to account for the difference between the New Gregorian Calendar and the Old Julian Calendar, uh, they basically skipped forward by 10 days Mm -hmm. uh, to bring everything into sync, essentially. So by order of the Council of Trent, the date was advanced. So that the fourth of October, fifteen eighty-two, was followed by the fifteenth of October, fifteen eighty-two. So that was what I alluded to in the in our uh, earlier section, was where uh, ten days just disappeared from the calendar. Easter had gotten out of sync from all of the,
2: you know, solstices and stuff, and the sure. r- the Russian Orthodox Church still hasn't accepted this uh, innovation, and so that's why Christmas in Russia is on the sixth You mean the 6th this desecration,
1: January. Joe? desecration of the calendar Um, i'm livid only learning about this now my solstices have all been out of whack
0: yeah uh in 1618 between 16 uh, well in 1618 is the start of the 30 years war and when did uh, that end which initially did not impact luxembourg too much uh ended in 1648 uh (laughs) for those that are not 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 particularly good at math yeah or officially ended in, in, in 1648, although, uh, as we'll see, it, it did not entirely end in 1648. But that's that's the date that uh, the history books uh, tell you it ended. Um, but yeah, Luxembourg managed to avoid sort of the early hostilities. But uh, the entry of France into the Thirty Years' War uh, turned Luxembourg into a very uh, central battleground in this war. And uh, Luxembourg was plunged into war, famine, and different kinds of epidemics. I didn't actually know this prior to reading up on the 30 years war, but it was, it was one of the longest and most brutal wars in history. Um, 30 years, so more than 8, mi- 8 million casualties. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, resulted from, uh, the military battles as well as, uh, famine and disease. And this was at a time when like global population was somewhere around the 500 million mark. So that's around yeah. 1.6% of the population of the yeah. world, uh, was, was killed by this Gobbled war. Gobbled up. Um, Yeah. So, by comparison, like World War Two killed about three percent of the 1940 world population. So you know it's 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 up there. Um, So, in 1659, which was really the true end of the Thirty Years' War, or the end of the conflict in Luxembourg at least, was uh, the peace signed was known as the Peace of the Pyrenees, and was signed between France and Spain. Nice. And as a result, uh, Luxembourg lost a tenth of its territory to France. And this, this be, is okay. the beginning yeah, of a this trend that we will see. It, 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 yeah, bits of its, you know, uh, it, it reached its height before this point, and then bits of its, you know, uh, it, it point, bits of start to be sort of bitten and chewed Middled. away by other other larger powers. In 1679, uh, the French under Louis Fourteenth began to conquer parts of the duchy, and in 1684. His conquest was completed with the capture of Luxembourg City. So now, uh, at this point, Luxembourg is passed to yes, the French. Yes. So the the, the
2: the siege was uh, overseen by a guy called Sébastien Leprest de Vauban, and he's okay. a really famous siege engineer. Um, and as was, siege engineers go, yeah, yeah, and he was like made a general in the army and stuff because of his skills. But he he had conquered Maastricht, he'd conquered Strasbourg, and kind of every time there was a city to be taken. Vauban was the guy.
1: Any uh, any EU relevant city, he was <laughs> he was there. Schengen, he, he, was, oh, he, was, he was as as
0: Ferdinand de Lesseps is to canals. I I, I imagine he was. Uh, Vauban was to uh, yeah. to sieges. Is that right, Joe? Yeah, yeah. And, I,
2: and like I I on my way to Luxembourg, I visited Strasbourg, and his name had cropped up. And then I go to Luxembourg, and they've named all of their walking routes after him. Basically, he uh-huh. he helped bring down the city. Then they took over the city, and then he. Built better fortifications to with his stop name on it. He's like, stuff "Here's that... where you guys went terribly, terribly <laughs> exactly. wrong with your fortifications." Like, um, and also, here's how I beat you. I think that it had been quite heavily fortified against the French. If you get me, like the the, the south of the city had a lot of fortifications, yeah. and he built a lot of the northern facing stuff, right? Uh, because obviously they were more concerned about Dutch and German uh, problems. Sure.
1: They never so. suspected an attack from the left-hand side. Okay. That's the the crucial crucial problem with the duchy.
0: <laughs> the French ruled up until 1697, uh, when the territory was again passed back to Spain. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, oh, I mean, geez. under the terms of the Treaty of the Pyrenees, Spain ceded much of uh, Flanders. And uh, yeah, like you mentioned, Joe Vauban was was put in charge of uh, fortifying some newly acquired towns, such as Dunkirk. In the War of Spanish Succession in 1701, uh, from 1701 to 1714, Spanish Netherlands then becomes the Austrian Netherlands, uh, and Spain gives up its, its possessions in Italy, Luxembourg, and Flanders. So, I mean, at this point, this territory is be- just being passed hither yeah. and yon, like it's it's going from 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 great power to great power to great power and back again. So, in 1795, six years after the beginning of the French Revolution, uh, mm-hmm. Luxembourg again comes under the rule of the French. So, for anybody keeping score, we have uh, Luxembourg going from the Holy Roman Emperor uh, or Holy Ro- Holy Roman Empire to the Habsburg Netherlands, to the Spanish Netherlands, to France, back to Spain, then to Austria, and now back to France. Sounds like a soccer commentary. But yeah, that that brings us up to uh, French rule. So we're gonna take a quick break here, yeah, and yeah, and then we'll we'll come back with the the first days of of French rule again. So do you want to tell us a little bit about
2: what the French got up to in Luxembourg, Joe? I do. So the next kind of century or so is full of tiny wars that and, and revolutions and incremental changes and Luxembourg shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. As you, you, you mentioned, the, the French had sort of started acquiring the, the areas that are nowadays Belgium and Luxembourg during the, the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. In that big war between the Revolutionary Rep- Republicans and everyone else, and they laid siege to the city of Luxembourg in 1795, I think. And the Habsburgs, uh, led by their governor Johann von Bender, uh, <laughs> I thought you'd like that mark. <laughs> Moving swiftly on, uh, they they did last seven months of a siege, and the, the fortress wasn't breached. But eventually, they they surrendered. And this kind of stuff led to Lazare Carnot calling, calling the fortress the uh, the best in the world, except Gibraltar, or the Gibraltar of the North, became the nickname.
0: It's kind of weird, though, the comparison to Gibraltar. I mean, not not to annoy any Luxembourgers who might be might be listening, but I mean, we just talked about how it's been taken over like multiple times. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, <laughs> the, the, Gibraltar, is... from our uh, from my recollection of that episode, is is it's remained fairly static for quite a long time. Mm.
1: Is is it? Um, I mean, so I mean, the obviously. The, 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 the so just so I understand, there was a failure to capture Luxembourg here. Is that... That's right, right? No,
2: no, they they, they take it, but not through... Like, they don't... No, they, they took they it. They don't uh, conquer it. They just... They, they surrender.
1: Okay, so... It's just not like Gibraltar. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just not. I, I, I was thinking like this guy was, was defeated in trying to capture. He's like, man, I think it's tough. It's like a flipping, it's like a flipping Northern Gibraltar up there. This is no one's going to, no, no, you, you succeeded. That's why it's not like Gibraltar. Like it's but, different. But I suppose the point is that
2: it is very, very difficult to get into.
1: Well, I'm I'm happy that he's, sure. he's willing to blow himself up for his success. Gee, so tough. I'm re- I must be really good to have done this. I must be really amazing. No, the guys, a, I don't like this guy. <laughs> this guy's a dingus.
2: Anyway, so um, <laughs> they allow the Austrian, the, the Habsburg garrison to leave. Uh, so on the 12th of June, um, the 12,000 men still there were allowed to leave with full honours in front of 11,000 French soldiers. And then there was this, this nice detail that the B- Belgian and Walloon soldiers who'd been serving uh, kind of laid down their arms and asked the French, could they be French now? Uh, As them, in like free okay. revolutionaries. Austria. So, you know, that's, uh, that's what it is. Right. So, I suppose they were French speaking and from Luxembourg and they're like, would rather stay? And they're like, wow, you guys just took the Gibraltar of the North.
1: <laughs> it was really tough. Can we tell you how tough it was?
2: Yeah. Um, so luxembourg and, and the Southern Netherlands were annexed by the French and uh, by the French First Republic and they became the de département de forêt, which means forests the forest department um and this was the the new administrative uh, unit there was um that the French Revolution came with a lot of secularization so they they wanted to take power and land away from the church and so uh they this included the the, the uh, there's a lovely church down in the Grund area of the city of Luxembourg, which is kind of in the v- valley basin, and it was turned into, I think, a stable. Uh, that Ooh. kind of stuff was going on all over Europe.
1: A deep insult on purpose, right. I think. Yeah,
2: exactly. And they also yeah. secularized things like marriage, and uh, you know, it, Luxembourg is a very Catholic country, and so a lot of all the civil. Records would have been actually kept as religious records, baptisms and marriages. And the French being here was the kind of first introduction of a civil government keeping these records. And also the civil code of law that Napoleon brought in uh, all over Europe is still the foundation of the legal system in Luxembourg to this day. Wow. Uh, And Hmm. that's why most laws are written and argued in French in modern day. Even though it's not most people's spoken language.
0: Yeah, I think I read a quote somewhere in the in the was it somewhere in the notes here, Joe, that like they um, speak French in, in government and then uh, discuss it in uh, in Luxembourgish and then and then make official announcements in German or something, you know, like, was it, well it was just kind of alluding yeah. to the yeah. the massive amount of different
2: languages that are that people have to have to deal with. Yeah. Exactly. So um, not everyone was happy with the French, particularly the uh religious persecution aspect of their their rule. And so in 1798, there was a thing called the Kleppelkrieg, or the, the Kudgel War, Peasants' War, which was um, kind of an uprising against, you know, religious persecution, military service, and taxes. Mm. T- triple threat.
1: All things that peasants um, hate.
2: Yep. yep. But the the kind of middle and upper classes were actually okay with the new order. <laughs> they, they did okay. And so
1: the... Uh, the war didn't <laughs> end well and 42 ringleaders were executed. I, so, I was just thinking in terms of things that peasants ate: Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, <laughs> why did that get into my head? Uh, <laughs> <all right. laughs>
2: Not a part of this conflict, um, but sure. So until kind of the defeat of Napoleon in 1815-ish, Luxembourg remained more or less under French control. And when the French left, the Allies installed a provisional administration. So...
0: And if uh, you if you want to hear the, more about what happened to Napoleon after he was defeated, then you know check out our
2: Saint Helena episode. Saint Helena, <laughs> sure. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Nexus, that guy. Mm. Um the 1815 Congress of Vienna gave autonomy to Luxembourg, uh, although it was partitioned and lost quite a lot of territory. So the Prussians swiped kind of uh, what was it about about a quarter of the country, but two thousand three hundred square kilometers. Uh, and about fifty thousand people, and especially so like the Netherlands and Prussia both wanted Luxembourg, so the compromise was that the Netherlands would give up so they were the house of Orange nassau or, or the king the kings of the Netherlands, yeah and but Orange Nassau was in the middle of Germany somewhere uh, okay, so the deal was they give up their historical home, Ooh. principality, in return for unfettered kingship of all of the Low Countries. Oh, okay. So, God. you know, it wasn't their primary interest, but it was just where their name came from, like the yeah. Luxembourgers in Bohemia. Yep. Yeah. And so they gave that up to Prussia, and in return, they got their, their mini shrunken Luxembourg, and it was elevated to being a grand duchy to make up for it actually being a, a petty uh, duchy, as it were. Okay. So they've made it smaller and then elevated its status. Somehow, somehow made it smaller
0: and yet more grand. So
1: it's, it's Department of Plenty mm. dealing with p- famines kind of stuff. So you now have yeah. a large house. Small. Mm. Small but perfectly yeah. formed, guys. And so
2: it was placed under uh, Willem I of the Netherlands as he was both King of the Netherlands and the Grand Duke of Luxembourg. So separate titles, but the same person, personal union. And it was the first time the Duchy had had a monarch who had no claim to the inheritance of the medieval patrimony. Right. So he wasn't descended from Siegfried or anything like that. He just there was a treaty. Here you go. Have a Luxembourg. But importantly, it wasn't part of the Dutch kingdom. So in a weird move, the Prussians got to keep a garrison in the fortress.
1: Okay. Of
2: several thousand troops. So it's like you can own it and collect the taxes, but.
1: That's a lot of troops.
2: We want to control the military aspect of it, which is a weird deal to agree to. Yeah. This is kind of an era of political change as newspapers start being published and widely read, various different political strains. In 1830, much of the Grand Duchy participated in the Belgian Revolution, which is a, a revolt in the southern bits of the Netherlands against Dutch rule. Um, okay. And it was actually incorporated into the new state, which took about 10 years to be recognized by everyone. So during the sort of transitionary phase, um, m- most of Luxembourg, except basically the city with its massive Prussian fortress, uh, was... <laughs> what a was, terrible <laughs> negotiation that was, it was so, t- so bad. B- but like the countryside all just went, went for the, the revolution, when, which... When as I had always understood it was, was caused by a particularly good opera. Um oh, right. So, you know, it's it's the Belgian Revolution, we don't want to dwell on it too much. But um just there's, there's this there's this scene in it, there have been plenty of agitation beforehand. Um but there's this wonderful scene of the, the La Lamouette de Portici being performed, which is a apparently a very nationalistic opera against like about liberty and the oppressive nature mm. of autocratic mm. kings and so okay. on. Uh, was very popular with the July revolutionaries in Paris for oh, right. instance and after seeing this the kind of I assume middle class folk who'd been at the opera stormed out of the theatre and took part in in a revolution that was getting underway and uh, like occupied buildings and stuff <laughs> Jesus right so but you'd be kind of like going to see Hamilton and then deciding to like march down to the White House and take it over
1: uh, I, I- yeah, I, was, I was actually thinking The British Embassy But yeah
2: sure Art can be powerful guys Be careful Yeah Um, And there were certain liberties Given to them By being Belgian That they hadn't had before And they wouldn't have In subsequent um, Okay setups So people got a taste for liberty In this Belgian A delicious era. chocolatey liberty yeah. To sort yeah. of um, Formalise There being a Belgium uh there was a big conference in London in eighteen thirty nine, and the first Treaty of London was signed. It eventually got the Dutch to accept that they weren't having uh, they weren't having Belgium back, and it did sort out the Luxembourg issue as well. So they were, they were given full sovereignty, in personal union with uh, with the King of the Netherlands, William II. So similar kind of setup to before, but a third of or no two thirds of the country, two thirds of the Grand Duchy were ceded to Belgium. Um, and right. This is currently called the, Pro- the Provence de Luxembourg to this day, and basically they were the French-speaking bit. Just to rub their nose in it, they they call, they still call it Luxembourg, and they're like it's ours. Yes, yeah. yeah. so yeah. Jesus, nice. Um, but like this was 175,000 people, half of the population, and nearly 5,000 square kilometers of land. And is this
0: now the 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 current borders, Joe, or is this? Is this... I th- I think so. Yeah, I think we're pretty. I
2: think we're pretty close. Yeah. Okay. Because the, Pr- right. the Prussians got the French got some a century or two ago. Then the Prussians got some. Now the Belgians yeah. have it. There's no one else to take a bite, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you think? But uh, oh boy.
2: <laughs> so the the remaining state was predominantly Germanic, albeit with French cultural influences. Um. And the Grand Duke decided to integrate Luxembourg into the into the Zollverein, which was the German Customs Union. Okay. Uh, because they were no longer able to trade with Belgium, which had been their primary economic mm. activity. Yeah, I, I mean, in hindsight, maybe
0: maybe not the best idea to enter into a economic agreement with Germany at this point.
1: Give some uh, notions.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, we'll see. Are, are
1: we in the? Uh... Are we in the Bismarck era at this point? I think we're 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 near. Yeah, we're very
2: much in that sort of space of Prussians expanding their influence.
1: Yeah, and Uh, and
2: the Prussians have a fortress.
1: How how interesting. hmm.
2: Um, and of course, that there were mineral deposits discovered in the south of the country around this time. I think iron ore, and that was important to developing a steel industry. Yeah, very Um, important. And so you had to have someone to trade that with, and so the customs union seemed like a good idea. And It's difficult not to see the parallels between, yeah, between a kind of a customs union breaking down trade tariffs and making trade easier across a large swath of Europe leading to a larger political union yep. a few decades later. I mean we'll, we'll revisit that concept in a century for sure uh, and then, in eighteen forty one the the king grand Duke uh, authorized the first constitution, so all meaning for power was his.
1: Uh, Good start. <laughs>
2: and the, <laughs> anything that's
1: worth anything has got my name in it.
2: The uh, assembly of estates, which was the kind of parliamentary thing, was weak. Uh, you had to pay ten florins of tax per year to be eligible, which I that think was a, like lot. a lot. Yeah. And um, the ballots were, were were public, so you had to stand up and say who you were voting for. Just just to put it in context, less than a thousand people out of twenty eight thousand were eligible to vote. For instance. Uh, and they also had to pay 150,000 guilders per year to the dutch king so there were there was lots of reasons not to like this setup mm. in 1848 there was a working class revolt uh, this was a thing across much of europe there were famines everywhere like we 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 know about the irish famine but um throughout europe there was lots of food shortages in the 1840s and in 1848 there was kind of a wave of liberal um, revolutions of kind of the farmers and working classes this happened in, in Luxembourg too. And, and I mean, it's easy to see why
0: to... the working class would get pretty annoyed, like farmers would get pretty annoyed mm. if you're paying 150,000 guilders to a, a king who's sitting hundreds of miles yeah. away. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it was a very, it was still a very agrarian country. They hadn't really gotten an, an industrial revolution yet. And um, apparently one in five Luxembourgers emigrated to the US during the oh, wow. second half oh, wow. of the 1800s. So again, we can see some parallels too. To our country there Sure uh, The uprising began in Ettlebrook in the, in the north of the country On March the 11th With locals declaring a republic And singing the Marseillaise Which is always fun They went on to kind of intimidate Public officials So they built a gallows Outside the house of the head gendarme <laughs> uh, Which That's is That's really messed up Yeah <laughs> Okay And they would like I think through fruit like Government officials and stuff And they came to the Luxembourg Mayor's house like a mob gathered outside, and it took the whole garrison of uh, Prussian militia to like convince them to go home. In all, it this revolution lasted about a week, but it did achieve some stuff. So, on 20th March, the government proclaimed an abolition of censorship and changes to the constitution, and began various state construction works for the various uh, vagabonds and wandering poor. So
0: please, just stop building gallows kinda... outside of our outside of our houses.
2: Please, you're scaring us. Please build this unnecessary road. And William II, under pressure, convened a special assembly, who met in Ethelbrook, to draft a new liberal constitution, closely modelled on the Belgian one. So Luxembourg becomes a constitutional monarchy, through a pretty bloodless uh, statement of dissatisfaction, shall we say. This... Didn't last particularly long in eighteen fifty six. there was it was what was called a, a royal coup in inverted commas. So when a, a huge
1: pigeon took over Luxembourg, hmm? a royal coup. Sorry.
2: Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, yes, that's exactly what happened. Uh, but yeah, so King William the Third was quite reactionary, and he basically reversed all of the all of the good things about the uh, the previous constitution, um, cut down on press freedom. You know that kind so
0: of stuff. All all the Previous concessions that were won were kind of
2: undone at this point. Yeah. Is that right. Yeah. Okay. Yes, this is 1856, so about a decade later. Right. And then after all of the liberal deputies withdrew from Parliament, he decided to uh, dissolve it. So the first railroad was built in 1859. so This is kind of industrialisation coming. Interestingly, the railway station is like two kilometres from the city, which I didn't enjoy when I uh, when yeah. I went to visit. Because no. you just <laughs> walk knowing. up the. I think it's called the Avenue de Liberty or something. Uh, but it, basically they, they didn't want to build uh, a railway line directly into the middle of their incredible fortress. Uh, fair enough. Which I suppose when you think about it... Kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the last kind of important thing I want to cover is the, the, the so-called Luxembourg crisis of 1866. Yeah. And this is this is where Bismarck really comes into his own. So what happened was that um, Prussia, led by Otto von Bismarck, kind of had a surprise victory against uh, against Austria in what's called the Seven Weeks War. So kind of a. Okay. Austria was considered stronger, but Prussia just kind of rapidly defeated yeah. it in this surprise war.
1: Using trains? It was usually trains they used. Oh, was it? Uh, yeah, I, when, I think when they invaded France, they used they used trains. Uh, well, then the
2: Luxembourgers kind of... were damn right not to not yeah. to put it.
1: Exactly.
2: It's like, should we paint big targets on the roofs of all our houses? No, no, people have planes now.
1: Don't do but, that. But our the insignia of our house is a huge target. We we shall not. We shall not. <laughs> so
2: Emperor Napoleon III of France had tactically remained neutral, and he offered to mediate a treaty between these countries. Uh, he dissolved the German Confederation and founded a North German Confederation, which was basically Prussia's club. Yeah. France had previously discussed obtaining Luxembourg with Prussia. They kind of had a chat about it. And Napoleon thought that the the deal still stood, like this had been a few years previously. Oh so he, he offered King William III 5 million guilders for Luxembourg, which William accepted. He didn't love Luxembourg very much mm. and was hard up for cash. Uh, but Bismarck kind of decided he now didn't want France to own Luxembourg. Yeah. So you're in this awkward situation where france like but we just we just paid, we just for, paid it. for it yeah and the guy doesn't want it and we thought i thought we thought we talked about this yeah otto we will sell it to you for six million guilders <laughs> <laughs> uh well they didn't want it either so everyone was basically panicked right that there'd be a kind of a world war um over this
1: little place right that won't happen for another three weeks <laughs>
2: Jesus.
0: So Luxembourg is kind of like a like a hot potato at this point. Like nobody knows really mm. what to do with it.
2: Uh, Austria suggested giving giving um, some of Belgium to France. Okay. And so King Leopold of Belgium uh, wasn't wasn't in favor no, of no, that you. for some yeah. reason. And the UK backed him. And then. Uh, and at any Napoleon's... point did they try to give it back to
0: uh, to the Dutch? Were they like no? no they're you've they're already probably... paid for it, so. Uh. Yeah.
2: Jesus. No take, no. Uh, Emperor Napoleon suggested that pr- the Prussians simply just leave the fortress of Luxembourg and then he'd be cool. Like, if they just weren't in the fortress, yeah. and the Dutch could keep it. Uh, and otherwise there'd be a war. And so Tsar Alexander II, um, Russians being conciliators as always, uh. called for an international conference. And so in 1867, the Second Treaty of London was signed. <laughs> Basically, the idea was that nobody wanted either France or Prussia out of Luxburg, so it was guaranteed perpetual independence and neutrality Wow, and everyone would defend its neutrality
1: and this perpetuity right. lasted eh. about seventy years push that yeah. yeah
0: it kind of reminds me of Singapore like becoming independent almost almost as a you know almost against its will, like oh yeah really yeah, campaign yeah. for independence or like push for it. Mm-hmm. it, just it just happened as a as a kind of a a political uh, compromise kind of political deadlock I guess yeah so
1: yeah no No. No one like it's not that no one wants you people would like to have you if they could just have you but the context of them having you is equally bad for everybody so no one gets to have you Mm -hmm. you just are
2: yeah and and so the conditions were that they would the Prussian garrison would leave Um, although Bismarck really won here because he got to keep Luxembourg in his in his customs union Mm. Um, the fort- and the fortress would be destroyed so they did a great job you know if you look at maps of all the fortifications of Luxembourg and compare it to now there's almost nothing left um, they took about 10 years uh, cost about sorry 16 years cost 1.5 million gold francs and required the destruction of 24 kilometres of underground defences and wow. 4 hectares of barracks batteries, castles and so on Wow. And now there's almost nothing left that would be of any real defensible value. And the upside was uh, the city could now expand. And as it industrialized, as the population grew, it actually turned out this was a, a benefit. Not one not having everyone want to conquer you is is uh, sure. pretty good. Yeah. Alright, uh yeah, we'll take a quick break
0: and then we'll come back with uh the the consequences of neutrality and how well that was respected. <laughs> so as i'm sure you're aware by now you wouldn't be hearing this show or indeed this interruption to this show if it weren't for our generous backers over on patreon however not everybody can afford to toss money to independent podcasters and we know that so if you're enjoying the show and enjoying the fact that we don't put ads into these slots and you're getting something out of the content that we produce there is a way that you can help us out and it doesn't cost a cent If you're on your phone right now or on your laptop, just open your podcast app of choice, leave us a review or a rating. That's all there is to it. Quick, easy, free, and it really does help us out and allows more people to discover the show. Unlike what's coming up for Luxembourg, it's a win-win. So if you can spare a few minutes rather than a few dollars, euros, rupees, or whatever, we would really appreciate the help. And for now, on with the show. So yeah, as you mentioned, Joe, uh, in 1842, Luxembourg had had joined in that uh, uh, customs union with Germany. And from that point onwards, the economy of Luxembourg and the neighboring German territories became very strongly intertwined. Uh, This went on throughout the the late 1800s. In 1872, the Germans took over the operations of Luxembourg's railways, and uh, that's... As I put in my notes here, this is what we call foreshadowing. Um, <laughs> Jesus. So Luxembourg was ruled by the kings of the Netherlands up until the death of William III in 1890 and the Grand Duchy then passed to the house of Nassau-Wielberg. This this is because
2: of Salik law. So like, the, yeah. the William III only had daughters and Luxembourg's rules had and to, couldn't be inherited And Luxembourg had to pass to a male heir, right? So this is probably for the best in the long term. Yeah.
0: First to inherit it was uh, Adolf, uh, Duke of Nassau, who died in 1905. Um, And then he was succeeded by his son, William. Again, following the the traditions of the Dutch, uh, uninspired as they are, as you said, Joe. Uh, He died in 1912. Next in line was William's daughter, uh, the Grand Duchess Marie Adelaide. Uh, She oversaw the occupation of Luxembourg in 1914 at the beginning of World War I. And okay. seemingly did very little to resist it. Uh, the <laughs> occupying force was very light, around 5,000 German soldiers who were per, uh, stationed permanently in Luxembourg. Territory itself, as we've alluded to previously, was an important t- transport and rail hub at the mm-hmm. crossroads of Europe, and many thousands of soldiers were passed through its borders throughout the course of the war. And again, um, the Duchess was was you know uh, sort of seen to be in the pockets of of the Germans at this time uh apparently he traveled with a, with a german entourage and um yeah it was very cozy with the german government apparently uh in 1915 uh a guy called paul eisen who had been prime minister for 27 years in luxembourg uh died and he threw d- his death basically threw domestic politics into turmoil he i believe had been holding uh successive governments together Throughout those 27 years, but uh, nobody was was able to take up that mantle. Uh, so in all, there were five different governments throughout the uh, the four years of World War One, uh, basically oh. just dissolving and then reforming, dissolving and reforming. Uh, they couldn't, you know, the government basically went into into gridlock for for those years, as far as I can tell. And Luxembourg's economy was also strongly integrated into the German war economy. In November 1918, then the German soldiers ret- retreated, leaving a political power vacuum for about a month. Communists in Luxembourg City declared a republic, but that lasted only for a few hours. Always do. Yeah. Uh, another revolt then took, took place in Exer sur alzette uh, in the early hours of the 11th of November, but that also failed. And then uh, a couple couple of weeks later, the first Allied troops under the leader of John J. Pershing uh, entered Luxembourg, followed by a double administration led by the American and French armies. And uh, the Allied troops were largely welcomed as liberators. Uh, For her collaboration, the Grand Duchess, Marie Adelaide, was uh, very heavily criticized, obviously, by the Allied powers (laughs) after the end of the war and was essentially forced to abdicate. Yeah. The Allies also forced Luxembourg to end its customs union with Germany, which was at the, at this time obviously its 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 biggest trading partner. Belgium, which saw a lot of Luxembourg as as lost territory based on the events throughout the 1830s, uh, pushed hard to take over the territory in the wake of World War One. However, Woodrow Wilson's policy of self determination for small nations eventually uh, prevented the Belgians from being able to take over. S- small small uh, European Marie's, nations. Yes, indeed. Yes, that's a, a, a good to note. Uh, Marie's sister, Charlotte, who was uh, favoured by the Allies, was uh, took over in 1919. Younger sister, also in this year, voting by all eligible adults was made mandatory. A few months after Charlotte replaced her sister, there was a referendum deciding on whether or not Luxembourg should become a republic rather than remaining a duchy. At the same time, Citizens were also asked who they would favor an economic union with, France or Belgium. Unlike some referendums that we won't discuss here, the will of the people was very clear on both of these issues. Uh, so
1: 52% Luke, and, 52%. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're keeping Britain great. Uh, we're closing down the borders. I said we weren't going to
0: mention it here, Mark. We're not going to mention it. Fish and chips for breakfast. Um, yeah. So, those were in favor of sticking with Charlotte as the Duchess uh, voted 77.8% of the electorate. To become a republic was 19.7%. To retain the dynasty but replace Charlotte was 1.5%, and to re- retain the monarchy but replace the dynasty was 1%. So, almost 78% uh, wanted to stick with Charlotte, and so they did. And then there was a kind of a, the other result was kind of more awkward. Because an economic union with Belgium uh, was voted on twenty-seven percent, and economic union with France was voted on seventy-three percent. So a pretty overwhelming majority there. But, but France weren't interested, right? France were not interested in becoming uh, part of an economic union with with Luxembourg. So I, I, I get the sense oh. that this was sort of like a, you know, uh, a, a cry for. You know, France had changed his yeah. mind. Basically, was putting France on yeah. the ballot. Like, please, we really want to be in an economic union with you, not just not Belgium. And yeah, France were were not super keen. Charlotte obviously was granted a very strong mandate from the people. settles in, marries, has six kids, and would remain Grand Duchess until her abdication in 1964. Uh, yeah. However, in 1917, France had informally promised Belgium a customs union with Luxembourg. Uh, so, as I said, that makes the result kind of awkward negotiations continued for i believe about a year to the annoyance of the belgians between france and luxembourg but uh it was never going to happen and those negotiations eventually collapsed in 1920 belgium was then begrudgingly invited to the table and an economic union between the two powers was uh, signed in july 1921 the belgium luxembourg economic union or uebl was thus created and the Belgian franc and Luxembourg franc were set at a fixed uh, rate between, you know, they remained uh, fixed to each other. Due to the referendum result and the lingering distrust of uh, Belgium's political motives, like I said earlier, they, they had kind of angled at taking over Luxembourg altogether. Uh, the public in Luxembourg greatly resented this treaty. And in the wake of the war and having lost its best customer for steel uh, in Germany, Luxembourg pretty much immediately after the war saw its economy begin to weaken uh, it is at that point, I think, that we start to see Luxembourg looking outwards and realizing that after uh, its occupation that it can't stand very strongly alone and needs to be part of a larger union uh, with more powerful nations. In 1920, Luxembourg then decides to join the League of Nations. I, I actually have the words sad trombone in my in my notes because <laughs> uh, that's not going to do them very much good. The economic crisis of the interwar years provided a... Impetus to the Communist Party as well in Luxembourg. Revolutionary ideas uh, gained popularity among the laborers, particularly in working class in mining districts. And in 1937, the government attempted to outlaw the Communist Party altogether by means of a law aimed at defending political and social order, uh, which was branded a muzzle law by its opponents. But in spite of a, a positive vote in parliament, the majority of voters rejected this step in a referendum and so it never went through. All right, so Mark, do you want to tell us how uh, how Luxembourg fared in uh, World War Two?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, it's like it's you know the, the the war part, like for the most part, is is not the interesting part to me. It's, it's more the kind of initiation, and part of it's because um, Luxembourg was you know neutral, and uh, you know big part of its kind of. I guess their view of themselves was was kind of concerning their neutrality uh, and and they were very desperate to try to maintain it. So there's a lot of kind of crazy stuff happening and Luxembourg is still going to go, but we're neutral. So (laughs) neutral though. So it's it's fine because we're neutral. Uh, So yeah, just um i i would i would recommend if you have time kind of having a look back at so like the the wikipedia page for for this is actually really really detailed it's 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 really good um and uh has a lot more stuff in it than, than i'm actually going to talk about but um anyway so germany invading poland was a very awkward thing for luxembourg uh who you know while while not themselves uh keen on on german invasions of poland uh desperately wanted to stay neutral uh as coming from the treaty of london from 1867 um they had a very small army so it was kind of neither here nor there <laughs> what their position about their neutrality was they, they wanted to stay neutral because you know uh for for reasons of self-preservation as well as kind of their own foundation myth and, and whatnot and their view themselves um they had a volunteer corps uh they were reinforced with a, a the grand ducal gendarmerie um and yeah they kind of amalgamated them uh under a guy called Emile Speller uh, major commandant Emile Speller not to give anything away but you know fancy names do not equalize good good war fighting here uh, at noon on 1st of September uh in 1939 when the invasion actually happened radio luxembourg announced that they they were essentially in order to stay unambiguously neutral, they would cease broadcasting apart from a few 20-minute uh, uh, bulletins uh, at midday and in the evening. And that was just for the government to kind of give announcements to the people. Um, the, the government supplied... So going to tra- stop
0: broadcasting entirely or are they going to stop broadcasting anything about the war?
1: Uh, kind of entirely, except for two 20-minute bulletins. Um, wow, okay. And that was kind of in case they said anything that was not neutral. Um, and wow. they apparently sent All over right. transcripts of the broadcasts to the embassies so that they could see how neutral they were being I imagine that would be pretty annoying if you were like a you know a fan of,
0: of Radio Luxembourg oh <laughs> like, yeah Great, Germany invades Poland and now I lost my radio
1: my like, my favourite show you know? uh, <laughs> exactly but, um, yeah th- like throughout this there's so I, I read a book actually about, about German history in general and like the last third of it uh, it really is making kind of the, the argument that kind of Uh, 19th century and early 20th century kind of German aggression was really just Prussian aggression. And you see the kind of aggression of von Bismarck here in this kind of challenging of uh, uh, Luxembourgian neutrality. And it also then kind of carries over into what you see happening in, in, in Ukraine in the last couple of years with regards little green men sure. and stuff like that. So this is a very like little green men kind of, kind of thing where the Germans are just mixing stuff up in weird ways, just trying to kind of put the Luxembourgers off their balance. So as I say, the, the radio went down, um, but German radio stations popped up posing as Radio Luxembourg. Uh, wow, so- okay. So, uh, making, uh, announcements which, in the opinion of United States Chargé d'Affaires George Platt Waller, were grossly unneutral announcements. Uh, on the evening of the 21st of September, yeah. the Grand Ducal government suspended all broadcasts pending the resolution of the war, because they're like, well, we can't even, while we're neutral, we, we look not neutral, because the people we're trying to appear neutral to are pretending that we're not neutral. So, <laughs> that's, that's what's happening, um. On uh, the 14th of uh, September, the Volunteer Corps was bolstered by the addition of a 125 strong uh, auxiliary unit. So that's it's good for them. Uh, so, sorted, I it's think. So 125 people. 125 people, it's yes, a joined, people. Joined, joined the group. So about a month before the invasion of May 10th, uh, 1940 there's a bit of a spoiler alert there the german minister presented himself at the office of monsieur besch who i believe was the uh, foreign minister at that point he was a former prime minister himself monsieur besch protested against the obviously hostile military preparations and constructions on the german border um which, to which were the declared to replied, what us hostile? which were declared to be only of importance for german river traffic <laughs> mm. <laughs> which is wow. oh, just such a ridiculous thing but Yeah, it's it's just the Germans are in ridiculously obvious war preparations, and the Luxembourgers are are like trying to do like the very very minimal like responsible things for the health of their population, and they're then being accused of being hostile themselves. And in fact, they actually start building a construction that is essentially like a continuation, sort of, uh, of the Maginot Line, the very famous kind of uh, fortification that the French built on the Belgian border, fatally flawed as as we will see. So uh, the foreign minister. Uh, rather skeptical about uh, about the visit said i should feel so much easier if you could tell me that you're personally convinced that your Ger- that your government as in the german government has no intention of violating the neutrality of my country the german minister eluding the question made no answer uh, uh, the the german military maneuvers and river traffic etc made luxembourg really really nervous so as i say they started creating this thing called the schuster line Named after the the main uh, constructor and engineer, it had uh, forty one sets of concrete blocks and iron gates, uh, eighteen roadblocks on the German border, and five roadblocks on the French border. Again, trying to look as neutral as possible, we have we're, we're blocking all the roads. Germany, see, we're 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 neutral. We're neutral.
2: This this might be a point to mention the the, sure. the motto of the the state.
1: Uh yeah, go on. Mm. Which is Mi believe,
2: uh, wat, wat Mir sein? Which is we want to be what we are. Yep. very much like but you and everyone Please leave us alone, right? Please leave us alone. Please leave us alone.
1: It has a it has a smack of the San Marino. Let's let us about. do our thing. Uh, we we are yeah. we are our own thing. Just please, we, we, we stop. would like
2: to just be what we are. Please, for the uh, love of God.
1: Yeah. Anyway, uh, it, it's worth noting that in their <laughs> creation of the Schuster line, essentially, you know, their version of the Maginot line, it was actually the French who were providing technical support. Uh, so the, the fatal flaws of the Maginot line such as they were are being drawn into the Schuster line also after several false alarms in the spring of 1940 the situation starts deteriorating Germany stops the export of uh, coke uh, for the Luxembourgish steel industry
2: very hard to do hard days work out a good drink
1: oh well that's one that's one version of that <laughs> one of the three versions of coke we're talking about the uh, fuel for the steel industry um oh, I see yeah, German uh, intelligence, as with kind of radio station uh, gambit they were playing, infiltrates the country, posing as tourists, uh, but uh, observed by an undercover French intelligence officer in Luxembourg City, posing as wine merchants also. Uh, German agents were, were seizing key bridges over the various rivers. Luxembourg authorities also worked to stop the Germans' activities, uh, as well as sort of uh, clandestine French efforts uh, within Luxembourg. On 3rd of March, the French 3rd Army was ordered to occupy Luxembourg in the event of a German attack. Uh, There was a secret command document, which was titled Secret Command Matter, (laughs) which required uh, special communication to be sent to 10 different railway bridges and road crossings uh, in, in the event of, you know, stuff happening. It read... These special detachments have the duty to hinder minings and de- destructions, but not to remove barriers. The special detachments wear uh, mufti. They carry arms, but no identity papers. They identify themselves at night by flashing green lights by day with yellow handkerchiefs. That's talking about the the, the Germans who are like over the border in Luxembourg right. already, basically working to kind of undermine the Luxembourg state. On the 8th of May, 1940, uh, the Luxembourg government ordered that all the doors of the defensive wall, the Schuster Line, be closed at 11 and remain so regardless of circumstances until 6am the following morning. Uh, so they're they're now like uh, battening down the hatches. All border posts on a high alert in Luxembourg City. Gendarme's mobilizing to defend public buildings and dispatching vehicle patrols to, uh, to arrest German agents, such as they were discovered. Um, and some members of the German diplomatic delegation were detained for questioning as they had yeah, They were definitely, basically, uh, using their, their uh, diplomatic cars for obvious subterfuge. They were released, uh, because Luxembourg is a nice country of laws. Uh, so, um, at midnight, Captain Stein, head of the Luxembourg military, the Minister of Justice, and the Police Commissioner held an emergency meeting trying to get reinforcements that never came. On the morning of the 10th of May, 1940, reports began to filter through that the Germans were bit by bit, making their move. Phone lines were cut, radio transmission stations were broken into, and German-speaking cyclists and pedestrians suddenly started shooting at the police. Uh, The Luftwaffe (laughs) were spotted at 3am, and the panzers rolled in at dawn, using wooden ramps to drive over the tank traps of the Schuster line. Some high-tech sorcery there. A couple of 2x4s, and we've climbed over your wall. Um, Yeah, Luxembourg ended up being little more than than a like a drive-by conquering rather than some massive campaign uh on the way through to Belgium and France this is essentially how they kind of got around the French fortifications as they went through Luxembourg and the Ardennes in the north the the Maginot Line is created with the assumption that no German would be so insane as to try to drive tanks through the Ardennes and then that's exactly what the Germans did because that was yep. better than trying to drive through the Maginot Line there's no way so, they would
0: go around our fortified lines never yeah, exactly
1: not through neutral Luxembourg exactly uh, no way so, um, not the military Belgium. might of Luxembourg so the, the, yeah. the majority of the, the Luxembourgish volunteer corps stayed in their barracks throughout this invasion because you know there wow. was like 10 of them uh, but you know there, there wasn't really a fight by any by any, uh, <laughs> any description uh, but
2: when when did the um, when did the Grand Duchess flee
1: uh, her, herself and the government uh kind of were were broken up a little bit because there were mm. so many german roadblocks uh they were kind of trying to navigate their way out rat in a maze style and hitting roadblocks and there's kind of various accounts of like um uh, the, the driver of one of the cars just driving through one of the roadblocks and stuff like that like it, it is very much you know by the skin of their teeth they got her out of there um and even then there's kind of several staging posts. They kind of got her so far ahead of the German yeah. lines and then the German lines caught up and they kind of had to go again. But well, it was well, initially to France and then France was conquered. And then. Yeah. I, they, yeah. They... I think initially it was to, to, to unadministered southern France. So I think she got to, to Vichy France uh, or what would become Vichy France. And then on to, uh, to London, I believe. Um, yeah. Via the yeah, US. I think there was a government in exile in London, I believe. Yeah. Yeah um yeah. so by that evening by the evening of the 10th of may the country was taken it was literally one day um wow. the germans outlawed french uh and in the 1941 census i mean they're so uh, they, german they probably outlawed luxembourgish as well because the, the, the whole point of this is that the germans were very keen to germanify the Luxembourgers. they felt they were sufficiently german that we can we can turn them around here. well i
2: think they wouldn't have seen luxembourgish as a different language but, I mean, they, kind of they, racial well, worldview. Potentially. Any they, more yeah, than they, Bavarian they have, was or, or anything else.
1: Everything was in German, but you're right, they might have kind of excluded it by proxy. By yeah, just kind they, of they, say would, they were Deutsch, anyway. if, not, yeah. if not Hochdeutsch. Um, the Germans outlawed French, as they say, but in the 1941 census, there was a majority of respondents from Luxembourg that answered Luxembourgish for most of the questions, uh, which was in part a response to this mm. kind of pressure to germanify. Uh so the Germans in 1942 introduced conscription and we know peasants do not like conscription. Uh and over 10,000 Luxembourgians uh were or Luxembourgers uh, were taken into the army which led to kind of a resistance movement starting to build uh and you know also led to the things that Nazis did to those that resisted them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um mm. also, you know, have to mention um that uh, twelve hundred out of the three thousand seven hundred Jews that lived in Luxembourg at the beginning of the war uh, were killed in the Holocaust, um, and you know many more uh, Jewish people were were brought out to kind of you know, France and other areas and, and fled. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's essentially a third. I I, um, I, did,
2: I did find uh, the synagogue when I was was in the really? Luxembourg city, and there is still a some Jewish congregation, but right. It's, yeah,
1: they they were, like everywhere else in the region, were just decimated. 10,211 Luxembourgers were conscripted into the Wehrmacht, among them the father of EU President Jean-Claude Juncker. Mm. Uh, I found a really, I mean, it was when he was actually getting brought in as the new EU president, uh, the son in the UK, if you want a kind of foreshadowing of, of, of the Brexit vote, was going on about how he's the most dangerous man in Europe. Did you know his father was a Nazi? That uh, was essentially what the article read. Uh, but essentially, wow. his, his, his father was drawn into this forcible conscription. Uh, so, you know. Um, Stop bringing your nuance to it. Uh... Uh, you know, yeah, it's flipping country. Um, more than a third of those conscripted refused to wear the German uniform and uh, went into hiding. Oh, uh, sorry, no, actually, no, I say more than a third. I think that was more than a third of kind of eligible eligible men uh, basically, you know, bugged out and tried to hide from the conscription. The Germans responded to this kind of opposition with uh, deportations to the east, uh, imprisonment in concentration camps, uh, among them the Hinzard camp and executions. As I say, obviously, the Jewish community was, was singled out for particularly unpleasant things. Uh, do you have about the... Radio propaganda.
2: Uh, not specifically. So, so like fr- from from London, uh, Grand Duchess Charlotta. Oh well, had like I, regular I, regular spots on on the BBC.
1: I was actually going to say, yeah, that there are accounts of people listening to the BBC, but I didn't know what the content was. So yeah, yeah so was on, was, she radio. she
2: gave speeches in Luxembourgish and this kind of became quite a unifying figure. Oh uh, right, that's okay. why she's remembered so. So fondly today, like the statues of her everywhere and the the big massive bridge linking the um, EU district, to the, the old city is named after her. She was kind of, you know, she was the voice in exile. The only thing on the radio in Luxembourgish was her on the BBC. And so the Luxembourgish, it, it was,
1: uh, Luxembourgish de Gaulle in that way, kind of fulfilling that yes, exactly. exiled hope. Yeah, um, we're coming to get you. And there was, uh, as well as kind of, I mean that was kind of one of the worst things people could do or were caught for doing was you know having a radio and listening to the bbc mm-hmm. um the other thing was obviously there was a lot of young men hiding from the the draft out in the farms and while the kind of the city was very much under like strict german control out in the rurality there were you know it was possible to hide people in in barns and stuff and kind of uh get them to pose as 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 other people to assume they were so uh, the tide is turning. the war. Obviously, the Germans uh, are beginning to lose. Uh, Luxembourg was largely liberated by September of 1944. Um, but Luxembourg still had quite a big role to play in World War II, as it was the setting for one of the decisive battles, uh, particularly on the Western Front. Essentially, the last gasp of the German Wehrmacht uh, against the, the, the kind of Western group of allies. The forest of northern Luxembourg, uh, as we've kind of highlighted, is referred to as the Ardennes. Um, and it was the Ardennes essentially the back Forest through which the Germans had driven on their way to France and Belgium and now it's kind of going the other direction as I say named for the family of Siegfried's old line the Germans lo- launched a, a massive last gasp major offensive trying to split the Allied forces and making a, a break for Antwerp I believe uh, and they bulged out about 50 miles in the Battle of the Bulge mm. uh, the yeah. Germans had about 200,000 troops as it's was actually just mentioned that like the, the, the battle itself was just the Ardennes, like, I mean, it's, it's the middle of World War II, people aren't that worried about borders anymore, uh, it's about kind of pushing the German army back, so it's 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 spilling over into Belgium, I think spilling over to a bit of France and a bit of Germany as well, but also quite a lot of northern Luxembourg is kind of drawn into this, so it's an absolute literal war zone. The Germans had about 200,000 troops as a part of this battle, uh, added to 400 tanks, and they brought another 100,000 reinforcements as things progressed, uh, and there was uh, Twelve hundred shells fired per day. I think that was by the the Americans. I think
0: they were fired by the by the by the Germans as well. I remember the 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 Battle oh, of yeah. the Bulge is very very prominent part of uh, Band of Brothers. I was going to say, I've seen it, but yeah, it's worth watching if you've never seen it. But yeah, it's a it's a horrific depiction of, of what battle must have been like. I mean, and it's also over the like you mentioned, Mark. I think it's over the course of a winter as well. So
1: it's it's the middle of winter. Guys are in, it's in December. freezing. Their
0: their. <laughs> proverbials off it's uh it's not great
1: also one of the issues and it's a a real life issue that's kind of identified in that is is the supply lines of the americans that they they came in uh and they advanced so fast that you know they didn't have any winter gear so they're essentially out there in their like summer slacks sitting in wet holes freezing their 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 nerds off uh and getting getting bombed into into oblivion by like the last bit of muscle that the germans have um as i see the americans were overstretched uh and in some areas were essentially surrounded uh that that, that uh band of brothers uh, episode that's kind of the most evocative is, is bastonia which is um again it's a real real place it's a real thing that happened they were essentially ring fenced uh, by the germans uh swallowed up uh, and we're just kind of yeah germans on all sides basically um mm-hmm. but uh they, there's a, I think I think it's actually mentioned in the episode as well that uh, famously when the 101st Airborne were asked to surrender by the Germans, the one word reply from General McAuliffe was nuts, nuts, Uh, uh, known as nuts McAuliffe from then on, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, once the supply issues were sorted, the American line consolidated and they went on to push through but the last Luxembourgish area was only cleared of German forces in February of 1945 so it took months to actually clear Luxembourg fully of of German influence Um, Uh, Can I just say Mark my my tour guide made an interesting point here where he said
2: someone asked about the American cemetery um, Sure and it's a lovely well kept cemetery uh, run by the the Americans with all the white crosses and so on and he said he kind of pointed out that there's also a German cemetery um, Yeah which is less well-kept because, obviously. Yeah. But the thing he, he wanted to really say was that, like, the average age of the Americans is, like, um, what's it, there's 8,000 American casualties buried in Luxembourg. Average age is, like, 24, 25. Yeah. And wow. the average age of the, the 11,000 Germans who died there is, like, 18. Yeah. They were... So his point was kind of like, this was really, like, they were calling up, the last of the last of the people they could get to fight. Yeah, yeah, these inexperienced in boys, and, and just yeah. throwing them at the allies in yeah in the Ardennes
1: and just just to mention numbers there, you, you it is about kind of ten to twelve on each side that that died mm. and were kind of identified and and have graves. Um, there was another forty to fifty thousand wounded on each side, and another twenty to thirty thousand missing. Uh, like as far as a, a battle, it was actually quite equal in the kind of terrible impact that it had on both sides but as you say the germans were way you I know mean, essentially the russians had killed all their guys basically mm-hmm. the, the russians had done most of the killing and the few germans that were left that could actually you know physically hold a hold a rifle or fire off a shell were the ones that were sent to uh to the bulge after the war that whole thing of neutrality is very much done for luxembourg they're like mm-hmm. nope that we, we ain't doing that again and you know anything that's going uh nato benelux any kind of you know uh trade unions or whatever they're they're all in they're all about it and i think that's one of the reasons they become such a central part of the you know the what the EEC and eventually the eu as well their motivating
2: factor is like this is never happening to us again exactly. and anything we can do to yep
1: to find stop being to on by
2: our neighbors is- yeah
1: yeah so that's uh that's uh that's world war two all
0: right uh yeah we'll take another brief break here and then we'll run through to uh modern day luxembourg
2: They bring claim it a mat. the schmut,
0: the schmut, they bring claim itch a mop, the schmut, the schmuck, they bring claim itch a mut, the schmut they
2: bring them it a muck, word it's on the rock, the schmut they bring claim itching muck, it on the Okay, Joe, uh post-World War two, what are we looking at? Mm-hmm. So, like the second half of the twentieth century, I would say, is kind of for Luxembourg a tale of, of two important European men. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of details in between, a lot of stuff happened, but in terms of their impact on a bigger scale, there's there's two key characters. As, as we discussed bef- before that break, the European project, as, as we call it now, was really part of how Luxembourgers saw the future of, of them not being a pawn in other people's wars. Uh, and it being a multilingual crossroads country that had suffered war and had tried to be neutral, kind of helped give it perspective that made it effective in this um in this kind of new developments that were happening in europe sure um what I didn't know till I visited was that one of the founding fathers of Europe, Robert Schumann, who I always knew as a french as a French statesman, was luxembourgish all right um he was born in in Clausen, which is just Look, like you can see his, his birth house from the Bock Fortress, just down on the other side of the valley, um, to a Luxembourgish mother. And his father is from Lorraine, which at the time he was born was German, but is now French. Yep. So even that is part of, um, part of the man's motivations, I'm sure. So yeah, he was legally a German citizen, spoke Luxembourgish at home, uh, studied law in Germany. He practiced his lawyer in Metz which in 1918 was returned to France. Yeah, and then he went on to be a French statesman. He was elected to Parliament and was a foreign minister and so on. Like, it's it's not really surprising that European integration was on his mind as his, literally the ground under his feet, kept getting swapped back and forth between warring neighbours. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure the Luxembourgish um, point of view also helped. So... His um, political career really took off after World War Two. He he had been sort of involved in the Vichy regime, which worked against him, but uh, he also was involved in the resistance, which worked in his favor. So de Gaulle trusted him and made him his a finance minister and later foreign minister for France after World War Two. Um, there was a thing called the Monet Plan, which was uh, Jean. Jean Monnet had come up with this idea that um France should control the Ruhr region of Germany where all the coal comes from. Oh yeah. In order to kind of secure the coal and steel industry within Europe and stop Germany getting uppity again. Because we forget we often forget like Germany was occupied for quite a while after World War Two and ruled by, for sure. yep. by the Allies. Um and Schumann kind of took this a step further. So on the ninth of May nineteen fifty, which is, is now Europe Day, that's the, the day every year that Europeanness is celebrated, um the the Schumann Declaration was made. And this was basically uh Schumann's idea that there should be a, a supranational body that would regulate uh the coal and steel industry and sort of Intertwine the economies of neighboring countries and make them dependent on each other and and uh, collegial with each other and have some external arbiter when when disputes arose. The German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer replied positively to this this French idea. Basically, the idea was to ensure trade and to to, to, to quote make war unthinkable and materially impossible. Sure. So. The Treaty of Paris created the European coal and steel community and Luxembourg was a founding member of this this political project and was the provisional kind of seat, being in the middle, being a big steel-producing region, um, being neither France nor Germany, but having history of both. It kind of ticked all the boxes.
1: And the British government issued a communique saying they didn't trust this. It seemed kind of cheesy and weird and had an accent and they don't trust it. It's all about immigration anyway and uh, keep Britain great, right? Exactly, yeah.
2: Um. So the origins of the EU can be obviously found here. There was a Council of Ministers representing the various nations. There was um a high authority, which would become the European Commission, the kind of executive. And there was also a, a kind of a proto-parliament of sorts. Uh, the, the Treaty of Paris in 1951, which was signed by Luxembourg, along with Belgium, the Netherlands... West Germany, France and Italy created the coal and steel community and also as part of that created the European Court of Justice which was seated in uh, the Kirchberg area of Luxembourg City. So this is a hill across the the river from the main city of Luxembourg and it was a fairly underdeveloped region at that point and now it's all skyscrapers of modern courthouses and so on. Uh, The 1957 Treaty of Rome created the European Economic Community and Euratom, which manages um, nuclear weapons and nuclear power. Right. And they also refer to this court as their, their kind of Supreme Court. So this court starts to become the go-to arbiter for um, all European projects, shall we say. Yeah. In, in 1963, the 300-meter uh, Grand Duchess Charlotta Bridge was built. I think I mentioned that earlier. It's this big red iron bridge, okay, uh, or sorry, steel bridge crossing the Alset. Um, and it really allowed Luxembourg to become one of these three de facto capitals of Europe, along with uh, Strasbourg and, and Brussels uh, and various European institutions. So the Court of Justice, the European Investment Bank, the European Court of Auditors have found their home on that little hill yeah. now that it was connected to, uh, to the rest of uh, the world. And it's also a home to an army of translators. And The terminology department Of the EU And so on Have made their home there wow. And I remember my tour guide Saying that this really Made the city A lot more cosmopolitan He was saying When he moved there In the 80s It was quite parochial And gradually As all these kind of Young educated folk From abroad Started coming in They'd be like hmm. Why aren't there any Restaurants that open After nine It'd be nice If there were restaurants That opened after nine You know And Why aren't there any Places to listen to music Or apparently There was no cinema Until the mid 80s For instance what? In the whole country Wow Yeah Okay. So, this sort of brought Luxembourg to a new place,
1: and their first pornographic cinema in
2: 1992. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the 80s, there were oil crises. the The iron and steel communities uh, iron and steel industries started to shut down. Mining was on the downward trend. In the midst of this, uh, Jacques Santé becomes prime minister. Um, and in 1984, Luxembourgish or Letzebuergerish. Um, a Moselle Franconian dialect becomes the national language for the first time. So, the way it's phrased is that the, the the country of the people is Luxembourgish, legislation will be in French, and administrative languages are French, German, and Luxembourgish, all on an equal footing. Okay. However, that works. And that that the anecdote I was told is that basically they took they talk Luxembourgish in Parliament while they're debating a law. The notes are taken in French and the laws are written in French. Then they go across the street to the Bistro de la Presse and talk to the journalists in Luxembourgish about what they've done. And then the next day you get the newspaper in German and read all about it. Nice. <laughs> and just everyone wow. is, just has to work in all those languages. Um, yeah. it's like my experience of Luxembourg City was most things are written in French, but no one really seems to speak it. Uh and everyone speaks English. In-
0: Written in French and German or just generally no, in French? No,
2: French. So like if you were to find a menu in a restaurant or street signage, it's sort of and would French you order, looks more order And prominent. would you
0: converse with a waiter or waitress in in German or French? Or You a... kind of
2: had to guess.
1: You would speak the Queen's English.
2: I generally sir. tried whatever language the, the business is name was in Change and then it. usually got replied to in another one. So Right. <laughs> but everyone was quite flexible. Yeah. Um, Important European stuff was that in 1985 and 1990, you guys will be familiar with, but maybe not all of our listeners, that the Schengen Agreement.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Schengen! I never knew, actually, before reading about this, where the name
2: came from. Yeah. Uh, Schengen is a place in Luxembourg. Yeah. It's a village Hmm. pretty much on the corner point between Luxembourg, France, and Germany. Yeah. And was picked as the symbolic place to sign these two sequential treaties, basically guaranteed freedom of movement to people throughout most of Europe. So, and not where? And not Ireland or the UK. Ah, oh, the UK, yeah. But including Switzerland, Norway, Iceland, which aren't in the EU. So yep. it's a, it's a European agreement rather than an EU one, if you get me. Hmm. And European integration is this wonderfully complex set of Venn diagrams. Yeah. of Like, there's the Council of Europe, which is every country you can imagine. And there's the EU, which is 20... Seven or eight countries, depending what time yeah, you're right. listening to this. Yeah, depending
1: yeah. when the publication date is. Oh, jeez. Um, uh,
0: yeah,
2: it's, 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 I mean, we
0: should probably just explain very briefly what freedom of movement kind of means in, in practical terms. Because, I mean, I've, the I've basement explained it of
1: our British values. Yeah. What it means.
0: <laughs> I, I kind of explained it to a few people, and I know we have a lot of uh, American listeners, and sometimes mm. when I explain this to American people, uh, some of whom I work with, they're they're kind of dumbfounded by the the concept. But basically, you can like uh, Joe and I once walked across the border uh, between the Netherlands and Belgium, hmm. and there's there's basically no si- signage even to tell you it's that you've crossed into another country. Belgium. Yeah, there's another yeah. sign, is that, but in some places there's no sign at all, and it basically means that you can move very very much freely between countries as long as you can make it into the EU. Well, it's more that the, the, the,
2: the, there are no border checks.
0: Sure, there are so no border the, frictionless. apparatus. Yeah. yeah. Whereas if so you were you, to move between, for example, Canada and the US, you have to stop and talk to an immigration mm-hmm. official. And, and, you know, if you're driving, you have to get your car checked and all this sort of stuff. Whereas, yeah, you can you can literally walk between it, it, countries. It means
2: for a lot of uh, European citizens, they travel without
1: passports. You travel with maybe your sure. national ID card or your driver's license. You might have to prove who you are. I, I'd liken but, it to traveling between the states in the U.S. Like yeah, there are separate yeah. administrations in each state, and each have their own senate. But yeah. there are kind of overarching binding laws and so on. And it's one of the one of the you know negative narratives around the EU. they're pushing towards ever closer union a la the United States Uh, but you know it's not quite it's not quite as developed as the amalgamation between the states and the US but it's analogous to it
2: but yes that was basically one of the fundamental liberties um, outlined in the Treaty of Rome it's like the free movement of goods free movement of people and free movement of labour and so Schengen guarantees the movement of people thing within most of mainland Europe and the, 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 the the next important character is um is Jean-Claude Juncker, which anybody who reads the news will have heard of. He was the finance minister of Luxembourg um, in the early 90s. He was the chair of uh, Ecofin, which was the the Council for Economic and Financial Affairs. Right. And was one of the key architects of the Maastricht Treaty, which would bring about the single currency and would create the EU in 1992. The European Union is, you know, it's whatever, nearly 30 years old, but not. It's just the latest iteration in this, as you say, movement towards more and more unification and integration. Yeah, and a single currency. I mean, it, just
0: to explain again, Joe, I, I, mm-hmm. I don't want to assume that people know exactly what we mean by that. Means That's the fair. euro, which is yeah. Well, it, uh, it would come to uh, me the euro. W- very widely across. Yeah, used very widely across Europe, where you don't have to deal with not changing. Well, yeah, not used in the UK yeah. currently, but not um, in the UK. But yeah, you don't. You basically don't have to. You know, if you do walk across the border between two countries, you don't have to change the money change that you're your money. using. Yeah,
2: it has pros and cons. But it, yeah, it took about a decade to integrate the single currency. But it was um,
1: yeah, the currency was, was launched a- in the nineteen nineties, and only then actual money I, came I out I think in two thousand two. It was January first, two thousand two. But I, as I recall, the euro was like a hypothetical; like it existed in hypothetical terms, yes. and it was like I think you know its exchange rates were kind of were fixed long in advance of it being exactly money. but like it, it did exist i think there were transactions in euro but it was as a fixed rate
2: what was it one euro 27 was a pound
1: exactly that yeah. pound uh, irish still remember that number they
2: really hammered it all
1: they really did good job on there
2: comes uh a little segue here
0: to talk about the flag um, oh, yeah. the flag of luxembourg flag as as we know it today the, the 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 dutch flag yeah that's the thing there's a lot of debate over this <laughs> the the flag of luxembourg is basically the flag of the netherlands except lighter um, slightly lighter blue yeah it's a slightly lighter blue and i think a slightly lighter red as well um yeah yeah it was first slightly, used
2: slightly more more oblong like
0: yeah slightly longer yeah. longer <laughs> yeah um first used between 1845 and 1848 it was officially adopted in 1993 and the colors were almost certainly derived by, from the Counts, Dukes, and later Grand Dukes of Luxembourg's coat of arms, which is like blue and white stripes with a red line over the top. But yeah, it's given rise to some debate because it does look extremely similar to the to the Dutch flag, which is obviously a lot more uh, widely seen. In 2006, MP in Luxembourg called Michel Volter introduced a legislative proposition to replace the current flag with the red lion ensign, uh, ensuring Which is that cooler. it would be—it does look cooler—and <laughs> arguing that it would uh, would be more distinctive and had more historical value within Luxembourg. But hmm. that proposal, unfortunately, didn't receive a lot of support.
2: But like, what what happens at a, at a Dutch Luxembourgish football game? Does everyone yeah, just wave,
0: like I know, I know. I mean, it's, it's it's not it's not entirely identical. I think we we talked. I can't remember who it was exactly, but we talked about some country before where. Uh, two countries had the exact same flag. It was Liechtenstein um, and Haiti. That was the one, yes. Liechtenstein <laughs> and Haiti. And then they realized Jeez. that the Olympics or something was. Yeah, it? they were both marching into the Olympics going, yeah. you guys don't look Liechtensteinian. Yep. <laughs> you guys don't yep. look Haitian. So at least there are some subtle
2: differences. But yeah, I mean, if you. If you took your Dutch flag and you washed it a few times. If your monitor
0: is tinted slightly wrong, like you you could very easily mistake them for each other. But uh, yeah, that's, that's the current flag of Luxembourg and it, it doesn't so, show any signs of changing.
2: Um, anytime soon, okay. So, back to racing towards the current day in '95, uh, the first European Commission president was Jacques Santé, who had been the prime minister of Luxembourg. So, he was a compromise candidate when the UK opposed the, the guy the French and Germans had agreed on. Because you know, I don't need to elaborate on that any further, <laughs> um, just because. Yep. So Luxembourg again is a safe, safe pair of hands. Nobody hates them. Then Jean-Claude Juncker uh, became the prime minister of Luxembourg after Sante went off to, off to Brussels. And um, he was prime minister for eighteen years, one of the longest-running uh, democratically elected I was say, head of yeah. state in the world. Yeah. So he must have been liked, or there were very few options. Uh, <laughs> anyone who's been following Brexit will will recognize him as the enemy of civilization. <laughs> yeah, uh, he, or, he, a dr- he, he, or a
1: drunken, a drunken European. He often gets well, portrayed he, as being. He he likes a glass of wine. Is is yeah. uh, is the view by many. He also there's a it was like he he's it's quite a strange character. He's an odd guy in a lot of ways. He he often hmm. kind of says stuff that are that is like a bit non. Non-politiciany, like yeah. w- when uh, when um, Viktor Orban, the kind of right-wing Hungarian prime minister, was like walking, mm. he's like, ah, the great dictator. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> he, he's always like, he's not wrong. No, no, but he's pretty, he's pretty informal in lots of ways. And he was, he, he was, is he the fellow who who gave, gave someone a slap in the cheek? Yeah, know, I believe, yeah really yeah. wallop them i think it's quite handsy yeah he he was also the one who was having the exchange with theresa may where she was saying how he had called her nebulous that great exchange uh, around the kind of conference table where she's just going nebulous me what yeah me you called me nebulous she's like freaking out <laughs> saying the word nebulous over and over again so but like you've never had to lip read the word nebulous but there's so many weird syllables and you're like He's just saying the word nebulous over and over again. Nebulous, 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 nebulous. Uh,
2: anyway. Uh, anyway, so Junker increased his own profile and Luxembourg's profile abroad, like on a, a visit to Dublin in December 96. He successfully mediated a dispute um, between Jacques Chirac and Helmut Kohl and became called the Hero of Dublin, apparently. <laughs> so, what? Yeah, that's news to me. Okay. Um, he was the chairman of the, the group of finance ministers at the time when the Eurozone was coming into effect. So he got the nickname Mr. Euro, which is another good nickname. um, As president of the Eurogroup. And Mm -hmm. he also played a big role in the EU's management of the global financial crisis in 2008. In that role. Negotiating and supervising the bailouts of uh, Greece, Portugal, Spain, Cyprus and... Uh, Ireland. Ireland, Uh, yeah. we, we, We had one of those. Good times. Uh, terrible, terrible times. It was pretty grim. Uh, they gave us loads of money that we had to pay back. Uh, That's not really given then, is it? No. no. Good times. Um, he, and he, he had this great thing where he got himself in trouble. He, he's a strong advocate of making confidential decisions about monetary policy rather than broadcasting it to the markets. Okay. So like, he got asked about like press transparency or something. He was called as saying, when it becomes serious, you have to lie which people didn't like. Uh, okay. okay. But I kind of admire his... Uh, it's true, so, though. <laughs> like, his frankness, I He went on, like, if we indicate possible decisions, we're fueling speculation on the financial markets and we're, throwing in, and we're throwing in misery mainly the people who are trying to safeguard from this. I'm ready to be insulted as being insufficiently democratic, but I want to be serious. I am for secret dark debates. <laughs> so I think that's the kind of I thing just, you're talking I, about, yeah. I've like, just, just, just found another quote from that.
0: him... Which I, I retweeted recently, um, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, on the subject of Brexit, he says, "I am um, less Catholic than my good friend Donald," which I assume means Donald Tusk. Uh, he oh, said he strongly believes in heaven and by opposite in hell. I believe I am in. Uh, I believe in heaven and not in hell. Apart from what I am doing now, which is hell, <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> which is just a great quote. Uh, Brexit negotiations. Um,
2: yeah. Anyway, he, we, as we've pretty much given away at this point. Uh, he became the EPP's Spitzenkandidat, which is the kind of lead candidate for President of the Commission in this sort of weird fairly difficult to follow sort of primary system they have for picking European Commission President. Uh, he became their, at their Congress in Dublin in March 2014. He became the, um, their candidate. They won the most votes in the European Parliament elections which gave them a pretty good uh, shot at anointing him as, as president and just to give you a few examples like Angela Merkel's CDU are in that party Sarkozy's um, Union for what was it Union for a Popular Movement I think were in it too right. as well as Victor Orban's Fidesz Ugh. who are now suspended are they alright and Ireland's Fine Gael what so kind of oh jeez Fine Gael are in the EPP alright oh, okay so Christian Democratic parties right. essentially centre right uh, and he, they didn't win a majority so they had to get the centre-left to back them as well which meant they've promised to kind of shift away from austerity towards growth and job creation. So, with all of that kind of settled um, Jean-Claude Juncker became the President of the European Commission and has a pretty pretty big uh, public profile as a result of that. Yeah. Um, and his five-year term is uh, coming to an end in 2019. Mm. And it's been european parliament elections which will determine who the next the next uh,
1: successor is just just one other uh one other quote from him i, I looked up uh, uh junker quotes and like i think it's going to be you know accusing him of being anti-democratic given the list that it's in but it's actually just a really good quote about all politics we all know what to do we just don't know how to get reelected after we've done it that is <laughs> it right there wow yeah and so, yeah, on, on domestic
2: policy, like Grand, Grand Duke, Jean abdicated in 2000 and was succeeded by the Crown Prince Henri. Mm. Uh, yeah. And Jean and he, died this year, he, right? Yeah, he died very
0: recently, actually, in April of this year. Oh, right. um, yeah, and I, 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 I read a thread about it on um, Luxembourg's subreddit. And I mean, obviously anecdotal, but judging on the reaction there, it was uh, he was much loved. Um mm. You know, he was he was on the throne for uh, I think thirty thirty five thirty six years, um, and yeah, apparently was a was a very beloved figure by
2: Luxembourgers. I, so. I kind of like their pattern of abdicating. It means they sort of they can be quite active, and then when yeah. they're not interested in being active, they like step aside. I think that's probably mm-hmm. quite nice. It's becoming yeah. the norm in the Benelux region. Or another thing that I I wanted to
0: allude to is um, I I don't know if you can speak to this, Joe, but uh, there's a high proportion
2: of Portuguese. People oh, yeah. in, uh, in so I, 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 I asked around about this and apparently it's just hmm. um, construction workers. So in the right. 70s, I think there was a lot of construction happening. And at that time, the Portuguese were the people who exported people for construction work. The same, right. same kind of demographic in Switzerland as well. It'd be like how in the 2000s, Polish people travelled to Western Europe right. Sure, right. for construction work. And in the 80s, Irish people went to Germany and yeah. England. So it was, that was just a demographic shift that happened in a lot of places. Portugal was, wasn't was wasn't particularly well off. It was under Salazar still, I think. And uh, this was just, you know, it was a small country. So any amount of Portuguese people is a lot of Portuguese people.
0: Yeah, I think today they make up somewhere close to like 12 or to 15% mm. of the population, I believe. And yeah, I think, yeah. as you say, I think a lot of it now is, is service jobs and that sort of thing. Um
2: but I'm sure at this point they're on second, third generation, and pretty
0: settled. Yeah, Luxembourg today seventy percent of the workforce in Luxembourg uh, right now consists of immigrants and cross border employees. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's one of these places, sort of like Dubai or somewhere like that, where, where there's you know basically if you're a local you're in the minority.
2: Well, um, well, that shows in the city anyway. Yeah, in the city. Yeah. I think half the half the population don't have a Luxembourgish passport or something. But sure. I, I did go visit a village called Die Kirch, uh where a famous brand of beer comes from, um, for their carnival festivities, and there it felt a lot more Luxembourgish rural. Okay. You know there was a Capo Capoverdian uh, contingent in the parade, which was a bit unexpected. But right. otherwise, that seemed to be the extent of the the, the diversity there. Uh, where in the city, you 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 could have met people from anywhere, speaking any language. And finance is very international. The EU
1: institutions are very international. It's, you know, as as process. we're in modern day, can I give a, a, a mm-hmm. few quick uh, a few quick hits? Sure. So sports wise, nothing really much going on. Didn't recognize any football players or, or anybody else. They did have a pair of brothers who were famous cyclists, but one did get do, done for taking a bunch of stuff he shouldn't have taken. Um, okay. I think I think one of the brothers actually uh, the Schleck brothers. One of them uh, Was actually one of the guys Who was awarded A Tour de France Because he had come second In the Lance Armstrong era uh, oh. And his brother Then did a bunch of drugs And was banned So <laughs> I said I don't, mm. don't know what to tell you It's a murky business
2: um, Cycling man They, they also had um, Cyclist Elsie Jacobs Was one of the first ever Women's Road World Championships In 1958 Oh very good uh, And went on to break The Women's Hour record Which will stand for Which stood for 14 years after that So maybe
1: cycling is their thing. Yeah, I think it is. They they never qualified for uh, a World Cup or European Championship, but they do have a single gold medal in 1952 for uh, running. Uh, A guy who was a big surprise, apparently, that he actually he actually won. And apparently, they also have, as kind of Ireland does, quite quite a few as well uh, in the kind of very early Olympics when nationality was kind of a bit bit more fluid and some of the nationalities have changed since then that uh th- there's actually a french guy who was secretly luxembourgian who won a gold and the french are still credited with it so officially they don't have a second gold medal but they they do apparently have a uh let's say a half a gold medal uh from from this guy uh food wise it looked i there was actually quite a lot of dishes i saw but a lot of kind of freshwater fish and things because obviously it's it's landlocked rivers. Um, and a lot of stews and quite quite Germany, it, it, it looked exactly but what you.
2: I struggled to find anything that was typically Luxembourgish anywhere. It was all French food or German food mm-hmm. or it, some very. But, but their,
1: their food does look very French slash German. It's like yeah. it's either stewy kind of stuff or rich northern French cuisine or mm-hmm. lots of pork. Uh, so German, uh, so yeah, it's it's it very much is kind of a, a product of of their geographical position between France and Germany. Um, the other the other strange kind of big thing I was going to mention is just the economy. Uh, we mentioned they they have a steel industry. They they have yeah. the steel industry actually because the 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 company that was formed around their steel production uh, initially went on to become Arcelor and was then bought out and amalgamated with Metal and is the largest steel company in the world. Uh, right. that, that is kind of like the big corporate that I I recognize when I saw, um, when I was looking at the list of kind of big companies that are coming from Luxembourg. Yeah,
0: the, so the, the the economy really was built around the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s on steel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that time, apparently metals accounted for up to 80% of the value of goods exported from Luxembourg. Wow. Uh, is what I have here. However, you know, obviously now it's transitioned very much to a service and knowledge economy. Yeah. And yeah, to, to, to kind of talk about the economy, because we, we really need to mention the economy. It's yeah. Um, in 2013, uh, GDP of Luxembourg was over $60 billion, Jeez. of which services, including the financial sector, produced 86%. Uh, financial sector, just by itself, produced 36% of the GDP. Industry was uh, 13%, and agriculture was just 0.3%. Uh, their largest export partner is Germany, and their largest import partner is Belgium, and GDP per capita as of 2017 was over one hundred thousand dollars per person, putting it yeah. around. Uh, you know, it depends on what measurement you have, but I think it go it sort of um, what way you measure and what source you use. But they they're anywhere between fourth and first in the world, depending on the cat. You know, depending on how you categorize it. Yeah, I just want to ask you guys, uh, and you might already know this, Mark, but. I wanted to give you a quick pop quiz of the um, the rest of the top ten in in that term uh, in those terms. Oh, and four of them are places that we've covered before. So do you guys want to take a stab at who you think uh, the rest of, would be in the rest of the top ten? Lichtenstein. There, Lichtenstein is number Lichtenstein, one. Yeah,
1: definitely in there. Uh, Qatar S- is always in there.
0: Qatar is number two. Yep. Uh, Brunei. Brunei is in there. Yeah. Brunei is number nine by the figures that I have. Yep. Uh, Singapore. Uh, Singapore is number seven. Macau. Macau is in there, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, just to, just to run through the list. Uh, Liechtenstein uh, first, followed by Qatar, Monaco, Macau. Uh, Luxembourg Olf- is fifth in this list. Uh, Bermuda. Uh, eighth is the Isle of Man, believe yeah. it or not. Ah. Uh, nine is Brunei. And number ten is a country that we're all very familiar with, Barney. Ireland? Yes. On this list, at least, Ireland Ireland is right. tenth. Really? Uh, that's... That's as, as of 2017, yep. Uh, average GDP per, per person.
2: 10,000 GDP per person for Ireland. Hmm.
1: But again, yeah, I think there's corporate is, uh, reporting issues are kind of, I'm not getting into okay. that, so like Facebook's European ventures are getting oh, supporters. Are,
0: yeah, yeah. That's according to the CIA World Factbook. Now, I, again, the, the, the there's an IMF list, which is slightly different and doesn't include as many small territories. Hmm. Yeah, uh, And for some reason, it doesn't include Liechtenstein at all. For some reason, I don't know <laughs> why, but... Um, well, yeah.
2: Liechtenstein has no people um, in it, and all of its companies are fake. <laughs> so, uh,
0: <laughs> Sure. Um, <laughs> were you going to talk about the Prime Minister, Joe?
2: Uh, well, I just want to say, like, about politics in general, there's kind of two political things I wanted to mention before you talk about him, which is just the political spaces right. are really accessible. Like, there's no barrier between right. people and, and politicians that I that I could see, apparently, that just wander around and are, are accessible, so that's quite cool. Uh, no real security. And also that um, there was a bit of a constitutional crisis in the early 2000s anyway, where uh, the parliament wanted to legalize euthanasia and assisted suicide. Yes, assisted suicide. Uh, And the grand Mm -hmm. duke did not want to, being a Catholic, of course, didn't want to approve the law, which the constitution required him to. So they changed the constitution and stripped him of the power to approve things and just to promulgate them which is just to say, this is the law. There you go. In
1: 2018,
0: Um, the uh, Prime Minister of Luxembourg, Javier mm Battelle, went uh, viral with a comment that he made to a reporter about the prospect of a no-deal Brexit. I don't know if you guys remember this, but uh, we'll insert a clip of it here.
1: The possibility... We have a meeting now, right there. If you don't give her the concessions that she needs, that deal will fail in parliament
0: and you might end up with no deal yes are you prepared to run that risk the brexit is your
1: choice not mine <laughs> it was brilliant. i think i think that's where we are Rachel. actually
0: <laughs> yeah and uh, there's a there's a version of it uh, where they, like he walks away and then they freeze frame it and they play that snoop dogg song and like the, the <laughs> sunglasses descend over his eyes and it's like just deal with it yeah, exactly. Nice. Exactly. Mattel
2: yeah. is also the first EU leader to be in a same sex marriage as of 2015. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And again, it's, it's worth pointing out it's an 87% Catholic country, but the state is entirely secular, and everyone's fine with that, which is kind sure. of nice. My my friend who lived there told me I had to mention the yearly duck race. There okay. Is a, is, they have a yearly rubber duck race in the Petrus River, Or you oh, bet cool. on a duck oh, for yeah. charity. That's kind of nice, and there's a nut festival in Fiona. Oh, and
0: I also have a side note here on sort of culture stuff. They they won the Eurovision Song Contest, uh, which some listeners mm-hmm. might be familiar with, uh, and then apparently de- they won it five uh, five times, and then apparently decided to leave because it was too expensive to take part, and uh, oh, right. they they have not been in it since. So, and yet uh, oh. San Marino pr- participates right. every single year. I was wondering about that. Yep. San Marino is in every year. Like a lot of smaller nations participate every single year. But. This,
1: this last year was uh, Sir Hat mm. uh, with uh, the hit Na 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 uh, for San Marino. But uh, Luxembourg, uh, Luxembourg, you're, you're right, didn't attend. There,
2: there's also musically um, that both the lead singer and guitarist slash bassist of Placebo uh, went to school in Luxembourg. Okay. Oh, uh, wow. Brian Molko right. and uh, Stefan Oldstyle both went to the American International School. All right. So. Wow If you
1: like placebo Apparently you can thank uh, Luxembourg Does, does that explain them. why he has That American accent When he sings I
2: think he might be Of an American family Ah
1: okay Well
2: that that explains a lot And could I just mention Two places I visited Sure That I would recommend To uh, anyone who goes there So they they make a lot of A lot of Mileage out of the Casemates These oh, yeah. 17 kilometers Of underground tunnels Which look amazing Well well worth going to They only open From I think March Like I was there the first weekend In March And they just reopened Okay so they they close for the winter for renovations and and it's really damp and cold, but well worth a visit. And then I happen to be in town um, the weekend of Carnival, which is the beginning of Lent. Uh, it's kind of a tradition all across Central Europe um, and South America, kind of Latin world as well. But it's got a bit of a different feel in Northern Europe than it does in in Brazil. Um, shockingly. Yeah, it was the, the the I'm going to put up some pictures and videos from from the parade I saw in Die Kierke, Um for people to look at. I mean, it's quite colourful, and it's basically all of the youth farmer clubs of the various villages come to town and make very impressive floats and costumes and uh, show off their skills, and they throw cups of beer at the people in the crowd. And uh, so, if if you if you could time your visit to go with that, it would give you something to do on a Sunday because the rest of the country is closed on Sunday. <laughs> All right. Speaking of which, we'd better close out this podcast. Nice. Uh,
0: as ever, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, where we are at or slash 80 days podcast. You can also help us out by leaving a review or a rating on Apple podcast or on your podcast platform of choice. As you probably be aware by now, our show is powered by patrons, and we have two new patrons to thank this month one of whom has a rather curious name, which seems to be a jab at our sometimes Americanized pronunciations. In any case, the donations are always welcome, so thank you to -um, (laughs) Aluminium and also to all-around great guy Paul Donnelly. Just a quick reminder that our patrons get to vote on the location of our season finale episode each year. We will be canvassing for ideas at the end of this month, so if you'd like to get involved this year and throw a few uh, euros our way this uh, single currency yeah. appreciated
1: yeah. indeed or any currency where
2: Um,
1: yeah if you want to get involved with the voting
0: uh, nominated locations please go to patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast
2: Joe where can people find more about you on the internet uh, people can can look at time to or burn is spelled like a surname uh, and I occasionally post things there. And Mark? Uh, I'm on Twitter, MarkBoyle86. Uh, yeah,
0: you can find me at the Luke J. Kelly on Twitter or at my website, LukeJKelly.com. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.
2: Eddie.